my fellow Brappentonians, and welcome to Brap Talk. This is a weekly podcast where we discuss the happenings of the motorcycle industry. I am your host, Jensen Beeler of Asphalt and Rubber, and with me today is the quintessence of friendship, Mr. Shaheen Ovandi! Won't you be my neighbor? Do you want to hug? I don't want to hug. Perhaps some candy? I don't want to hug, no. I, got I do some, want some candy. I do got like some candy. fresh baked cookies for you. Cookies are my weakness. Just, I know they are. That's how I take <laughs> sexual advantage of you every time. No, don't touch me. Cookies. Okay, touch me. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, fine. All right, fine. Are, this they time. Ma- are they the Mega Stuff Oreos? Okay, fine. Oh, yeah. those are You're, you're the one that introduced me to those. Yeah. Um, that's a whole new level of Oreo that I've... I don't even think I can eat them without you. I feel like that's a special bond mm. in two brown things with a bunch of white things in between it. That's how you describe an Oreo. Well, this got weird. Yeah. Hey, you know how I know you're single? Huh. It looks like you shaved the fucking porcupine in your bathroom. Oh, I forgot to clean the sink. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Why are you sorry for me? <laughs> I don't fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, you, you kind of caught me right as I got out of the shower. <laughs> well, you left the door unlocked. So we, you and no, I always I go back and forth. Because I was like, it's going to be hot out. There's a good chance he's going to get here while I'm like in the shower. I don't want you to have to be like outside on the porch. You know, in the we, heat, we always miss that on. somehow. This is the first time in I don't know how many in 19 recordings that I've been able to come in and just walk right through. Either you unlock the door and I don't notice it and I just knock and wait for 20 minutes, <laughs> or the door is not open. And today I was just like, fuck it, I'm just gonna walk through. And it opened. I was like, hope you're not naked. I hope there's a naked girl running around the house, but Coda, uh, just Coda running just around. Coda, and she greeted me at the door screaming at me. Yeah, she wanted food bad. <laughs> She's like, I don't know who you are, but feed me. I'm hungry. And look at these boxes. Also, I'm very hungry. <laughs> feed me, a piece of shit. Uh, we do have boxes. We got all the boxes. Why do we have so many boxes, Jensen? Uh, I got to give a big thank you to the folks at Arai Arai. for coming through like champions. So back this up a little bit. For those that don't know, like industry insider stuff, right? Every month, Arai sends out an email to editors and I assume other people that they want. Influencers. Influencers, VIPs, whatever you want to call it. They basically send out like an email saying like, hey, these are the new colors and new graphics for this month because they're always adding stuff. Right. If you want anything, let us know. And what they end up doing is they make it like in Japan special to order. So like wow. if I want a Nikki Hayden replica, I type in, you know, I send them an email, say, yeah, I want a Nikki Hayden replica, size large. Here's my address. Cool. Then that email gets forwarded to Japan and some guy on the Japanese assembly line is like, oh, Nikki Hayden replica for Jensen. Go build it. Huh. And it comes to me. I get like two months later. It takes forever to get there. Still pretty impressive. Eight-week turnaround? Yeah, it's cool. I mean, the, the whole thing's cool. Don't, I'm not saying anything. It's just the lead time is quite long. Right. So I sent them an email because we we're trying to do the Goldwing show. I was like, hey, guys, can you help us out with some helmets? But we're on like kind of a tight deadline because if I wait another two months, Sheehan's going to kill me. He's just going to come in. He's going to kill mean, me in my sleep. Listen, I've never ridden bitch. So wait, that's a terrible thing to say. I've never ridden as a passenger. No, that's not true. I was 15 years old the last time I wrote as a You're full of lies. Look at you. Yeah. You're a liar. I've had to I've had to go back twice on the same sentence. Yeah. So I apologize for saying that. I've never written as a passenger in the last 26 years. Had to do math. I've been a passenger a few times in the last 10 years. I can't know if I can do that. Shit, I lied again. I was a passenger at uh, last year's track day when I low-sided my damn bike and had to get it right back home or to the to the pits. You were a passenger on the back of the Indian the last time I had it. That doesn't count. That was 40 yards. 
Uh, all right. All right. I take the whole thing back. All right. I'm just excited about being a passenger with just, you. Just lock it down. That's all. It's like we're recording. Come on. Eh. We got things to do. Just shit together. I ain't editing this. I'm not going to edit this it. out for you. You're going to look like an idiot. That's, a, I mean, <laughs> more than when. <laughs> I don't got time. I got no time for that. More than the time I bared my ass online? Uh, ooh. Just going to gloss right over that for a second. I'll finish my Arai story. So so the good the good people at Arai... America's um they found some stuff in inventory. One came from Pennsylvania, another one came from California. Wow. But we got two helmets pretty quickly cuz you, you asked for this like they were they were awesome about it. So I'm pretty stoked. Thank you very much. We are very close to having everything we need for the glowing show. I'm going to do some stuff. I say tonight. we're 85% there. Basically, we need to sit down after the show and find out what time next week we're uh-huh. recording. Oh, I'm so excited. It's going to be such a disaster. Oh man. Such a disaster. Two big dudes on a bright white gold wing. You know, I haven't looked at the gross vehicle weight rating to see if we're over it, but I, I'm I pretty, just think let's just sure let's are. just assume it's going to touch some hard parts. Dear Honda, it's going to have some scratches at the belly. We're going to have to put it in sport mode just to stiffen up the suspension. <laughs> Can Honda send us a, a, a stiffer rear uh, spring? All the springs. <laughs> all of them. Just, just all, all the springs. Three of them. However many it's got. Actually, no, it's only got one in the front, doesn't it? Yeah. Just one in the front. There's two springs. One in the front, two in the back. That's not how that's. That's a, yep, mm-hmm, yep. Honda, one in the front, two in the back. <laughs> I don't think that's actually true. But that's their ditty. Diddle, that's ditty. Funny. I don't know. Little 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 thingaroo. Um. So a week from now, we should start in earnest recording the long-awaited Tenere Seven Hundred of podcasts. It the Honda Gold. If we get this done before Yamaha gets the Tenere 700 out, we said that from the that's beginning. A win. That we said that from the win. beginning. Did we? Yep, that is a win in my book. <laughs> but we've got we got all the headsets we need. We got all the helmets we need. We just need lapel mics to plug into our lapels audio recorder, and we're good. Yeah. And then and they're still learning. Oh, we got to figure out some GoPro stuff. But like that's that's not very insurmountable. No, we got that, we that's got that easy. That's easy peasy. We'll just wing it. What could possibly go wrong? Be hitting traffic. <laughs> that that could go wrong. Well, we got to decide what day we we're going to do. We got to explain to some Portland officer. Well, you see, officer, I do a video. I was doing a podcast <laughs> and I was recording myself. While I was running the motorcycle through your traffic, and all your shitty drivers kept cutting us off. What are you going to do? <laughs> uh, yeah, so that should be good. We'll keep you abreast on social medias. We'll probably should stop start up Brat Brap Talk podcast channel. On YouTube? Oh, yeah. I don't know. That's a good idea. We're going to put on Asphalt and Rubber for the first one yeah. and figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll make it a pro thing. <gasps> can you put on Asphalt and Rubber Pro where the yeah, pros can the, watch? The, the video would have to be private, and we don't mm. want to do that. I don't want to be private. I like sharing with everybody. Yeah. All the things. All the time. Yeah. It'd be good. We'll figure it out. Well, so we got the helmets. Woo. That's good. Um, It's sunny here in Portland. I just got back. But Shaheen, what I want to know is tell me about your adventures at the Tour Tech Rally because I think we teased that last show. We did. And you were going, yes, we did because you were going to pick a tire. Let's let's wait on the rally. I want to know what tire you picked and decided to go out and do the thing on. Are you you just looking to exert some... Some energy gonna, at me. Some sit some sit my Mountain Dew while I, <laughs> just, while you figure this just, out. So so I after the last recording uh, posted on our Instagram yeah. that I need to you know we I need help with choosing a tire. Now I narrowed it down to four tires so that the listeners and readers can kind of chime in on. I, I'm pretty impressed with the number of people that that tend to chat with us on our Instagram and different channels, but. Nah. I didn't get 
I'm Did not going to go buy it. rogue. Uh, you went rogue. I didn't went a you? rogue. Yeah, because I remember seeing that post. Me like, this is a pretty good cross section lineup of tires. Yep. Jensen Bieler approved. Uh huh. Wait, were like, all four of them? But I knew, Jensen Bieler approved. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I, I think, there, think was, so there was like one in there. I was like, are you kidding me with this mm-hmm. nonsense? I have a feeling the one you're thinking of is the one I'm going to buy. <sighs> All right, so I went to our favorite little dealership here in uh, Portland, and they had two of the four in stock. Was that a deciding factor? It it no, they were my top two. It happened to be my two top two. So so the 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 four that we talk about are the uh, let's see here. What do I have? I've got the Metzler Carew threes, mm-hmm, like that one. So I rode that tire on the on the KTM 790R Adventure. Mm-hmm. I didn't love it. I think it depends what terrain you're on. That's fair. But it's, again, I'm going to be, I, I wrote it on the trains that I would be riding on, which is street and dirt. And no, it, no, no, I if, mean, like, like, like what kind of dirt? Because I see that tire and, and the Pirelli Scorpion Rally mm-hmm. DTX, whatever it is, as being better in loose stuff than hard stuff. Yeah, it is. They have really, really big teeth. They're kind of like paddles. Super paddly. Yeah, it's exactly what they look like. Yeah. And they sort of ride like that, too. You have this weird disconnect between paddle to paddle between you know yeah. block to block so that's one the other one was the motaz tractionator adventure i see you shaking your head just don't jump the gun jensen uh and then the number three was i, I the, should preface i don't know what he picked i've got a good idea though <laughs> number three was the mitas eo7 plus now that thing is a tractor tire to make my current Motaz uh, Tractionator GPSs look like they're road tires. I got to ride that tire as well. Hated it. It, it good, and it doesn't last. I shouldn't long. say good. I shouldn't. Say, I just, I just look at that and I was like, that's just a bad idea. Well, so the, the the problem with that tire is that it it feels as as sort of disconnected as the current tires that I have on my bike, and and I understand that you have to give up some things to gain other things in these things, such as you know longevity and being able to hit just about every kind of train you can hit. The problem is these these. Mitas has sort of felt like chunkier and clunkier and less rounded than my current tires. So it just, it felt weird. And then the number four choice, which I think most people wanted me to pick, was the Michelin Anarchy Wilds. Yes. Those you, are great tires. You, you've had a pair of those I had before. those. It was his first set of tires when we custom uh, wrapped that bike. We, you know, we had those tires on there. Um, you know, honestly, the main reason I picked those tires initially is because the the custom wrap, the Kajiva Elephant 900 Dakar race bike wrap, that I did on it has Michelin written on it. So yeah. I was like, well, I should get Michelin, should get to, Michelin. to, you know, be true to form. Love those tires. They, I, I only got about 3,500 miles out of the rear before it just disintegrated. So I'm, I'm thinking I want it to last a little bit longer than that. I'm probably going to put about 6,000 miles on there. So much to your dismay, I've gone ahead and selected the Motaz Tractionator Adventures, which is basically in the same realm as that Anarchy but it's a harder compound. So if you look at it, it just looks like it belongs on a tank, maybe? Some kind of a, like a personnel carrier? Perhaps a 1940s Willis? <laughs> but I'm curious. I'm going to give them a try. They're way different. I have never tried them. That's the thing. I wanted to try something I'd never, I'd never ridden on before. To be fair, I've never to ridden this fair. tire. I have no, no experience with it. I have no real world knowledge i don't really have an opinion but i've discovered something okay i've discovered me. something about you Ooh, i'm curious through this, through this journey i've learned something about shaheen dun, dun, dun. you are the flat earther of motorcycle tires 
How's that? I'll, I will tell you. Okay, I'm curious. <laughs> sip your drink. I will tell I will you, sir. Sip this. <laughs> um, that was funny. So, we, we I think we've talked about this before. Like, we, we talk about like stuff we watch on Netflix way too often. <laughs> I watched the documentary um, Behind the Curve. Uh, I watched the first half hour of it. and I wanted to kill everybody, so I stopped oh, watching it. So good though. But Ugh, one of the things like you angry. start to realize, and I think one of the things that they're trying to tell in that story. Isn't that like flat earthers like Roland Sands? Aren't they're not morons? Say that again. <laughs> so this is another thing. I'm not entirely sure if it's true, but it's a it's a motorcycle rumor we've been trying to start. Do you have his phone number? Call him right now. <laughs> this came up in Italy when I was in Italy for like three months. <laughs> we're like, because we we're gonna have like a, a planned April Fool's joke. Like all the publications are gonna. <laughs> well, run you the love same doing April story. Fool's jokes. Favorite thing, favorite thing in the whole wide world. <laughs> all the publications are gonna run the same story about how Roland Sands was a flat earther. Oh my god, that's the best. <laughs> and they all chickened out. Come on, <laughs> that's amazing. I wish you would call him right now. But but going back to this documentary, one of the interesting things it's it's not so much that these people are dumb, right? Or they're uneducated or uninformed. It's that they find power and meaning in having knowledge that the mainstream doesn't have. It's like, hey, I know this secret thing that you don't, that you don't know. You haven't, you have been fooled by society and complacency and being a lemming and think the world is this way. When in reality, it's it's like the red pill versus the blue pill. Like they're they're the neo, they're the ones that woke up and they realize that it's all the machine world and we're just in some false reality. It's the same with the flat earth. It's just like the earth is actually flat. We're just been told that it's round and it's this conspiracy and like there's people involved and it's not so much that they believe that they just get off on the idea of like I know I know the real truth. You, uh. you know the fake truth. I know the real truth. So they're not just being contrary. Enlightened one. And it's the same thing where it's like. I know that the government killed JFK. You, you just, you're just a regular citizen. You don't, you haven't been figured out. You haven't figured out how the CIA is a secret shadow government, and then the the mole people are secretly controlling the puppet strings here. <laughs> and it, and it goes on and on because it's not just that they're flat earthers; they're conspiracy theorists on all sorts of things. Yeah, they they disbelieve a lot of things, including vaccinations. See, to me, they came out Which across is, as that, contrarians. And that's and I think vaccinations is a perfect example of the Diet Coke version of flat earthers, right? Because it all comes back to people getting on the internet, finding a nugget of information and deciding to believe that that piece of information, even though it has like no real proof or backing, is correct over this other piece of information that has all the scientific research. But the scientists must be in cahoots or it's bad science. And it's like it's the same thing like blueberries detox. Blueberries can cure cancer. Or here's that that miracle, you know, superfood that you're going to eat. That's going to make you so much more healthy that you didn't know about before. Like quinoa is going to save the world and anti-vaccines. Like, well, you didn't know that vaccinations caused autism. Now, that's why I don't vaccinate my kids because I'm more enlightened than you. Because I found this information on the Internet that Jenny McCarthy told me about. I mean. And that's what you are to tires. Wait, but how? Because you're sitting here, you're finding these crazy fucking tires that like are just these like two degrees of separation beyond normalcy. <laughs> you know, most people are like, oh, I'm gonna get the I'm either gonna get the Michelin or I'm gonna get the Bridgestone, but maybe get a TKC eighty. But I like those Pirellis or those Metzlers. You know, like the those yeah, but everybody the, has those, those tires. are the established brands. And you're and you're like, you're going past Hyden House. 
Yeah. And you're going into like another degree path. Well, I'm not putting on like this. square tires expecting them to do the same job. I'm I'm trying to get a set of tires that not everybody uses so I can later on talk about them. You're you're just in between <laughs> the hide and how guys and the double dark side guys. I will I will swing You're not you. quite like, hey, we didn't land on the moon, but you're like not entirely <laughs> sure that you know veganism is real. It's not real. You're just kind of in this like like you're in a dangerous place with your tires, sir. You're in a very dangerous place. Like you're just you're one tire rotation away from just putting trucker tires on that thing and calling it done. Ooh. Hey, you're, if they work, you're well. gonna get some BF Goodrich and just go to town. I looked; they didn't have any tires for me. Oh my gosh, sons of bitches! No, I what I'm looking for is a tire that can give me like more than a couple of thousand miles of 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 experience on the road. But at the same time, like not give up utterly everything because that's the problem in the tire world. As soon as you, as soon as you find something that compromises, that means you're giving up goods too, right? Like if you want it to long last long, then it's going to be a harder compound. If you want it to have all the grip, it's going to be a softer compound, so it's not going to last as long. So somewhere in the middle, there's a tire that works well, but there's no such thing as the perfect tire. It's just something that will work for your specific instance. So you want good on-road performance with good off-road performance with long tire life. No, I want mediocre. You only get to pick two of those things. I literally want mediocre out of those, of those three. three See, if I pick all three, I can have mediocre in all I don't three. Think, I don't think that tire exists. I'm so going to find out fair. with this next tire I'm trying. But I will tell you this. Truthfully, that Michelin Anarchy Wild was a an awesome tire. Uh, I remember you walk, getting through it pretty quick, though. Very quickly. Yeah. But it gripped like a street tire on the street, and it gripped like like a hardcore dirt tire on the dirt. It never let me down on either one of the excuse me, instances, but that rear tire after 3,000 miles was just gone, which from what I understand from like people that use the Continental TKC80 is amazing. Uh, I had a TKC80 on my Hyper for a while. I would say you get about hmm, 500 to maybe 1,200 miles of road riding where the the blocks are still good enough to do some right. They're not good all rounded up and off road riding. Like you're not going to be compromised. And then right. you're going to get like close to 2,500 miles on it on the road. But after like that first half of it, your off road riding is going to be pretty garbage. Yeah. You're going to be slipping and sliding everywhere. This whole experience for me, that's my experience, not the experience. This whole experiment for me is almost like akin to like, that show Mythbusters. I'm trying these weird different tires just to see where the hell they sit. Yeah, you're on the boonies, man. You're oh, out yeah, there absolutely. with the flat earthers. Well, I mean, everybody can tell you about the these other major brands. And the the anti-vaxxers. How am I going to find out the earth's not flat unless I go all the way around the fucker? Right? You got to finish that documentary because the last oh, 30 God, minutes. it made me so angry. The last 30 minutes are gold because they come up with this experiment to prove that the earth is flat. And the experiment straight up proves the Earth is round. I think that's what pissed me off about the documentary. And then they none of those people came across as like, stupid. They're just like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, it's because the refraction of the light. And you're like, no, oh, no, no, no buddy, no, 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 no. Oh. You just proved the Earth is round. Uh, <laughs> I can stand it. He literally stood up. He's like, I can see Seattle. That proves to me it's flat. I'm like, I want to crawl through this TV. And oh choke no, you gotta you. wait for longer because there's like a whole love story there. Oh yeah, that, between that him that guy, and that redheaded woman. Yeah, that guy is like 100. percent Well, I think they're both. Truthfully, I think they're both in it. Because they've become kind of stars in the flat earther community. And I think they just like the 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 recognition. They're they're people of note amongst a small demographic of people. I, right. I can understand that. Yeah, I get it. I get behind it. Like you want to feel important. Who doesn't want to feel important? 
My wife. She could care less what you think. That's not true. That's, that's not probably, true. That's probably fair. That's also. not true at all. She'll tell you that, though. Hashtag, hashtag T-Man. Hashtag T-Man. That's where this conversation She got all ends. mad at me this morning. Don't do that, man. She got all mad I got to go morning. home later. There's Mountain Dew at the house waiting for you. I don't want her to shake it up before you come over. It's just going to be a mess for everybody. <laughs> she got all mad at me. She's doing the, she's doing the Lord's work. Don't fuck with the Italians. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, um, segue <laughs> so from this got to the rally. Segue, oh segue from this tire to the rally. So you're going to do this tire. You're going to put you're going to go do the thing. You already have these tires? Tomorrow, tomorrow they're getting installed okay. tomorrow afternoon. Okay. Um, so So you didn't do the rally on them. I did I did the rally you did on Did the rally on the tractors? On the tractors. Which one are those? Cuz I keep so calling that's, them tractors. So that's the, the well, they're basically the tractors. They're called the Tractionator GPSs. Wait, Let's, how is this different from the ones you you got before? So the the ones that I have are more like the Ugh, hide now k60s where Wait, they have like a solid line down the they're center both from the same company oh yeah you're a fucking sellout how am i a sellout i'm trying to different you got style it from the tire. same company different style of tire oh my gosh oh my god <laughs> so i got to meet those people we're gonna talk after this. they're they're a very very small company i got to meet them they're they're straight out of like australia and they have like one flat earther type dude who kind of you know See? pedals their, their stuff yeah oh yeah I went over there and I was like, I'm not going to drink any of your Kool-Aid because I think it's garbage, but tell me more about this tire. Yeah, tell me more about how you haven't drank the tell, Kool-Aid tell, on this tell company. Me, tell me more about this tire, good sir. Tell me more. And so he, talk, he talked to me a little bit about them and I was like, fuck it. They're, they're weird enough where I'm going to try them out. What the hell? They're going to cost me about the same as the Michelins. Uh, whatever. I'll have fun in the summer with them, go do some BDR riding and hopefully not get a blowout and then see what's up. Now, if they do something weird, I will get back on the air and let you laugh at me more. I don't understand how you double down on it. Like they weren't the greatest idea in the first place and you're doubling down on it. It's just where I'm at right now, man. I mean, I want to try it. I want to try them out. I want to take a whirl on the, I'll on let the you big best beast, but yep. I'm oh. just shaking my head here. <laughs> just the thing is, I want to try the Bridgestones. That's I, the tire I want to get on. The Bridgestones. The AX41. I don't think they make that for my bike. They made that specifically for your bike. Oh, that's you're right. Adventure. No, so that's another like paddle style tire though. That looks no, like it's, it's gonna. Not. Oh god, I hear it's, it's so. It's a knobby. How look, is that? Look it even... up. Look it up. It's not a paddle. There must be a reason I I pushed no, it away. Maybe it's a little paddly. It's pretty paddly. It's a little. Look it's not distance. nearly like the Scorpion or the Cairo. It's not. Not nearly. It's like as... a knobbier version of those. It's a knobbier version of those, which is more paddly. The funny part about guys like you and I talking about tires like this is that we're both very street biased. And so we're we're looking for like, every time I talk to somebody about these knobby tires on a street type motorcycle, like my big old elephant down there, they're like, well, they handle like garbage through the corners. Like, yeah, no fucking shit. They're I knobby tires. TKC80s were phenomenal on road. Same with that, same with that Michelin. You can drag an EU on a TKC80. Same with that Michelin. I put an E on the ground with that Michelin, which was creepy as all because it kind of danced under you. Yeah, it, it, it does a little wiggle. <laughs> wiggle. Wiggle, 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 won't. Um, so, uh, all right. Let's talk more, about the. Tell me, tell me more about your bad decisions. My bad. No, that's it. I've made the decision. I'll tell you more about it when I put it on later. Oh but goodness. I went to the Tour Tech Rally. Yes. Which was super cool. Way bigger than I thought it would be. It is in a tiny little dot on the map in Washington. We've called, already we've already discussed where this is geographically yeah, because it's true. You're like it's way north of it's Seattle. Way the fuck up there. It's not. It's way east it's of Seattle. Way, east. <laughs> it's way the fuck east of Seattle, dude. That part of the country is beautiful. It, I know, is. it looks like the Alps. It's, it's insane. Beautiful. Yeah, it's uh, it's gorgeous. 
I couldn't figure out for the life of me why they picked that spot. And then you get there, you're like, oh, the, there's so the many The only trails. reason to go to Spokane, Washington is so you can drive through all these beautiful mountains. Yeah, that's it. That's all I can and think you can get to Spokane. You just turn right around. <laughs> Don't stay. Just <laughs> turn nice. right around. Bye, guys. See y'all later. Leavenworth, Washington, though. I, I bet that's pretty cool in the in the winter when it's all snowy and it looks like little gimini. Is that where the federal prison is? No, no, it's a different city. That's a different Leavenworth? Yeah, a different Leavenworth. Do you, you think, think that's Leavenworth? It, do you think they named it after it? I don't know why they named it that. Probably named after a person, like much of anything. <laughs> so anyways, we got to meet a lot of cool people. Um, a lot of classes were being taught. I took my giant beast through the tiniest little track of uh, like super technical area and later down in uh, in a very sandy kind of soft area. My rear tire touched what I thought was a log, but I later on look at the picture and it's like a fucking twig. But my rear wheel t- uh, touched it and I just laid on the gas and then the bike just went, nope, low side. Um, not fun picking up a 600-pound bike when it's laying the wrong way. Yeah. Like the the wheels were higher up than the handlebar. Oh, uh, yeah. And you so, need to work out with that. Oh, dude, I, I had to finally grab it by the back tire and drag it where it sat somewhat level and then just kind of like deadlift the thing up. Thank goodness I can deadlift like 400 plus pounds because... That still leaves you like 200 pounds shy. Dude, I, I picked it up. I get back on there. I finished the rest of the course. The guy who's, you know, kind of managing the course looks at me like, where you been? I'm like, where the fuck you been? <laughs> I was over here. <laughs> so I get, back to our, I get back to our camp and I take my helmet off. And <laughs> one of the guys with us is like, you just run a marathon? I'm like, fucking hey, man. I no, feel like I, I just did. lifted a marathon. Dude, I sweat harder than I've done playing rugby. That was such like with full motorcycle gear on. And just straight up adrenaline helping me pick up this bike. I don't know how I didn't pull my back. Uh, good form, I guess. But a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to going into go it next year. It is the KTM slash BMW slash Honda Africa Twin show. That's what's primarily there. Okay. Like far as motorcycles. You see a lot of big KTM adventure bikes, a lot of uh, big BMW RGSs, like 1200s and 1260s and whatnot. Or 12, are they 1250s now? The new RGS, whatever. The GS is a 1250. 1250. The Multistrada is a 1260. 1260. I get that confused <clears throat> all the damn time. There were two Multistrada Enduros. So sad. And one Multistrada Pikes Peak with TKC80s on it. And there was a guy who showed up in a, in a ST3, but he <laughs> was just regular street. Like he was just hanging out, checking out what was going on. But lots of BMWs, lots of big Africa twins, lots of, you know, 1090, 1190, 1290 Adventure KTMs. Really tells you about the market. Yeah, Triumph actually had a really good showing there. Triumph of Seattle shut down their whole store and were there for the entire weekend. Oh, wow. So there was a huge thing going on there. Um, So Triumph, KTM, and Honda were letting people test ride because they had brought uh, factory backing. Smart. Um, So I went with a couple of Ducati people, including Motocorsa, the dealership here in Portland, and they were kind of testing the water to see how it is. I think next year... Whoever's going to this thing should probably look forward to having some big Ducati test rides happening over there. I think that's. I, I think it's just. I think. Let me let me settle down. Got a little Simmer mind down. What I really think is that the Multistrada Enduro is so underrated. It's really expensive. Yeah. Which really doesn't help. But Ducati's done such a poor job of kind of getting that story out there, marketing that story, especially here in the U.S. Yeah, it's an afterthought. Like it doesn't get included in those those lists, and you're like, you know what? It's just as cable. It's just as good. But it's a great bike. It's so much fun to ride. Yeah, I did the uh, Ducati ride experience enduro on it. The yeah. DRE, 
And I was impressed with that machine so much on what it can do. And uh, I put one of those in my garage. I love that bike, man. I just I pushed 21,000 miles on it. I don't know if I... Do I put one in there before? I mean, I'm probably getting a KTM before I am a Ducati. But like... If I was buying used and I found one like at a price, <laughs> no, but like someone's like, yeah, man, I got a great price on my Ducati. I'd be like, oh, for, forget that KTM. I'm going to look at the Ducati. Yeah. It's like, it's right there. It's mostly just a price, a pricing thing. So for it's me. funny. You talk about the pricing thing and I agree with you because you can buy a 1290 Adventure for 1290 R for like 18, $19,000. If you, if you go to the right dealership. Right. But at the right time of year. I priced out my bike and then i just for shits and giggles priced we, out that's right we did that yeah yeah and then the bmw r1250 gsa which is basically the big gas tank version and that's the most expensive one you can buy and i priced one of those out the way my bike was set up it was more money it was like 1800 almost two thousand dollars more money so it's not the ducati is not the most expensive thing out there but it's definitely an afterthought i mean people saw us on ducatis and People that are in the, you know, have been riding for a long time, even they were kind of scratching their heads like, oh shit, I keep forgetting Ducati makes a bike like this. You see, the thing with the GSA and the GS in general is BMW's already done the work. Yeah. They've already, they've basically built this market. They've been fueling it. They, they're our bikes lead. Uh, GS is the best selling BMW in the USA, usually. I believe um, it. Every now and then the RR sneaks in there. Um, but they've 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 built that brand. They've built that market. Ducati hasn't. And so when you're at when you're already like kind of the pinnacle, you can charge the premium. But like Ducati's got to get in there. Like they got to get some market share. They got to tell a story. They got to do some events. They need to put some asses in seats and be like, hey, like this is just as good as a GS and it's cheaper and it's Italian and it's beautiful and welcome to the club and all that jazz. Ducati's marketing is kind of interesting. I, I I don't know what the right answer is for them, but having worked in the dealership side, it, it almost feels like they're marketing efforts goes more towards what they consider sort of a mass market, which is like movies, you know, less, less, I mean, there's no real print market anymore. And, you know, their, their digital market, I don't think they want to throw so much money at it because I feel like they think the return on that investment is not as big as it should be. But at this point, like showing up to something like the tour tech rally where a thousand riders that are there, I mean, and that's the thing that I actually enjoyed about tour tech rally I would say nine out of 10 people that were there were riding hardcore, like out there in the dirt, getting dirty, falling off their bikes. I would dare say everybody there was in pretty good physical shape. And the, I think the median age was like mid forties. Um, so you saw people on both sides of the spectrum, but it's, if you show up there with a motorcycle as a, as a manufacturer and you prove to people that it's rideable and you let them ride it around their trails, like KTM was letting, that's where I finally got to ride the 790 Adventure. And, you know, they, they're like, yeah, here's a trail. Let's go ride it. Let's hit some gravel. Let's hit some potholes and some, you know, jumps, jumps and stuff like that and see what you guys think. So we're thinking next year we're going to try and get Ducati involved and go out there and show people what they're building because the bike's there. It's available. Frankly, I like the 950 Multistrada even better because it's a lighter version and you can get quick shift with that bike. So it was a good time. I enjoyed it thoroughly. It was, we experienced a lot of different kinds of weather, mostly wet, but Kind of a better reason to go out there and ride in some gravel and kind of play around a little bit and give my tires their last little hurrah. I would very much like to go with you next time. Let's do it next year. Figure out a bike. It's a lot of fun. I was just looking at the GS adventure. It looks, I've always, I always kind of underrate the GS because I'm just like, ah, so big. It's so heavy. And then I, I was on one in Morocco and I was like, 
that's why people ride these because they just work. They just do they're everything. Just, they're just good. It's like got Not that great. German level of like precision to it where it's almost boring because you know it's going to fucking work. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's great at everything, but it's just good at everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's interesting. Um, Maybe KTM can let you borrow a 790R Adventure. I really want to get on a 790 Adventure. I think the issue with that is just this first year with such a limited production for yeah. the US. I don't really see them like trying to push it, but maybe next year. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Those bikes will be made in China too, which will be, I'll be curious if there's any differences we, we see coming out of the factory switch hmm. um, in terms of, well, one, in terms of specs and performance and two, just in terms of build quality. I'll give you the quick version of how I felt on it. It was good. It was not overwhelming in any sense of the word, but you could kind of tell the bike will do everything you ask it to do. It'll never, ever shake its head at you. It it does weigh 120 pounds less than my bike, so it immediately felt like I was riding on a dirt bike. But the power output, and this is where everybody's kind of wondering, you know, because the bike's putting out like 98 horses. That's a fuck ton of power. That's all you need in the dirt. That's that's almost overkill. Dude, that's all you need in the street. I, I could pass probably three 18-wheelers on that thing without breaking a sweat. It's not like you have to do math of wondering, oh, am I going to make it? The bike's incredible. And, you know, everyone that says, well, only up to 100 miles an hour. Well, welcome to the real fucking world. 100 miles an hour is really going to be your limit no matter where you go. Yeah, how often are you really breaking Yeah, especially 100? with knobby tires. Uh, those tires are not rated for more than 99 miles an hour anyways. I think I did like 85, 90 on the CRF 450L. <laughs> and things were getting interesting really quick. <laughs> like, oh boy, oh boy, track straight, you fucker. <laughs> and then you started thinking like, braking. <laughs> I gotta stop this thing. Fuck. And we and it was raining, and I was just like, this is not gonna end well. I have, I've gone well past what evolution <laughs> has readied me for. So I'll say this: the braking on the 790R, um, it's adequate. It's not mind blowing, but you, I don't think you'll ever wonder if it's gonna work. It's just not like on my Ducati, that, that initial brake bite is pretty pretty uh, for real. 790 still a dual disc? Yeah. Okay. Yep. 21-inch wheel up front, 18-inch wheel in the back. There's like three different variations of seats that you can get for it. Uh, the one I rode had an Akrapovich slip-on exhaust already put on there. My only thing that I kind of scratch my head at, and I think I've said it before on the air, is the gas tank kind of comes down to these bladders on the side. But KTM basically says, if you're going to wreck hard enough to damage those gas bladders... The bike's already done. Doesn't yeah, even matter. I don't worry about those. Yeah. So, and the guy was like, yeah, we got little carbon fiber, you know, protective shields you can put on there. I'm like, okay, I think you might want to tell these people it's made out of, I don't know, steel. Like make something a little hardier, but it's, I mean. People are so funny though, because I still get that with why carbon fiber wheels on my Kramer and right. people like, oh my God, you're using carbon fiber wheels. I'm like, you can don't they explode when you hit things? You can throw those things on the ground and it's not going to do anything no. to them. Like people treat them like they're made out of glass right. sometimes. I mean, there's definitely, it's not the same as metal. I mean, there's definitely like, you can't just apples and apples that, but this idea, like you have to like handle them with kit gloves. Right. Carbon fire is a pretty robust material. It takes a lot. Yeah. It's interesting. They build the whole cars out of them and everything. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so Tour Tech was fun. Uh, I'm not going to get too into details about it, but there was, uh, for whoever wants to go, know this. There's plenty of food options, plenty of drink options. There's, you know, like, I think this year, like eight or 900 people showed up. So there's just a lot of conversations you can have. There are, there were 14 planned rides that you can either go in a group or you can just go out on your own. They give you the rides up, up front. 
They're like, here's the map, have fun, go do your thing. So people get up at like six in the morning before everybody else hits the trail and they just go. And they have like green, yellow, and red. And honestly, looking at the red rides, it was like doing like regular BDR stuff. So you could probably do it if you're a decent enough off-road rider. On an, on an adventure bike, you mean? On an adventure bike, yeah. So, but you would say most people doing the rides were on like proper dirt bikes? Uh, Enduro bikes, mostly. Even the proper dirt bikes were Enduro 450s and 501s and 690s and right, stuff like that. Right, but not like Tiger 800s or GS 850s. No, no, they were out there. Huh? Okay. Yeah, it was that's that's what I'm saying. It was a great it was awesome watching just about everybody that showed up go out and do things. Um there's a lot of classrooms they fill up pretty quickly, so if you think you're going to sign up for next year, you know, pay attention to what you want to take, you know, partake for as a classroom and sign up for that. Um but it was incredible. There's like a gas station and a grocery store and a restaurant right across the street, so even if you don't bring your own food to eat while camping, there's plenty of options. You're never ever going to And then this is the other thing. Bathrooms everywhere, and they were kept super duper clean. They were just porta potties, and then uh, were they honey bucket porta potties? They were fucking honey buckets, man. <laughs> God damn it! And everybody there now knows my whole thing with honey buckets. We're cracking up on there. Like, why are you calling it? This is the worst name ever. The anyways, best name ever. <laughs> um, and water. They provided water for everybody. There was two big uh, rental trucks, like box trucks, full of water. You just showed up, grab yourself a gallon of it, and go back to your tent. It's part of your admission. I think it's like hundred bucks maybe for a three or four night uh, camping fest. It's nothing. That's not bad. It's nothing. You get a lot out of it. It's worth every dime. What are I should have I should have primed you on this at, at lunch before we record the show. What are Shaheen's tips to a successful tour tech rally or any rally in general? Um, I mean, you kind of touched on some of them, but I want to know. Like, I never I never been to one of these before. What do I need to know? So you want to you want to bring all your camping gear with you because right because you're camping out in like yeah a it's, it's so field or oh, whatever. Ooh, actually, big red flag. If you have hay fever, don't fucking go. Yeah, the whole field is a hay field that the farmers harvest, and then the week before the Tour Tech Rally is the the Overland Rally, I think it's called. Yeah, so all the four wheelers go, and then the weekend after that, um, I don't know if they hit the ground one more time or not, but they they open it up for the Tour Tech Rally. But <laughs> there is. One of the guys uh, from Bellamaki who was there, he's got hay fever. And the whole time he's like, man, my allergies are going crazy. I'm like, why? He goes, I have hay fever. I'm like, buddy, you're standing in a hay field. Um, he was fine. He just took his, you know, Claritin. But so bring your medication with you if you've got any kind of allergies. But that's really the only kind of real caveat to the whole thing. Otherwise, bring your tent, bring your sleeping stuff. Um, there is going to be plenty of food. So if you're not the type that wants to cook for yourself every day, there's restaurants and there's food vendors there. You know, you're going to spend probably about 20 or $30 a day in food if you don't bring your own. Hmm. Um, you know, bring your own water. But there, this this year, from what I saw, there was never a shortage of water. Everybody was constantly taken care of. Um, try to do the whole thing. Time runs out real quick while you're there. And so people were showing up just for like the Saturday and Sunday. But Saturday is sort of like the fullest day. And then Sunday by around 3 o'clock, all the vendors are leaving. So Sunday's sort of a day to leave. So it's a, you know, get there Thursday, enjoy Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then some of Sunday. Um, and there's so many cool and fun rides to do. And by the time, you know, you're done riding by four or five in the afternoon, you're worn out and you're just kind of hanging out and drinking and talking with everybody. But come there prepared to ride. You know, make sure you have good tires on you. There were there were a couple of tire 
companies there, but as far as vendors are concerned, only one, which was that Motaz company that I'm putting on my t- on my bike. They were the only ones there that were that brought tires and were changing people's tires. That kind of surprises me a little bit. I was surprised too. I, I mean, I Dunlop be... was there. Everybody was there, but they weren't putting tires on people. Dunlop was there. Dunlop was there. They didn't have an adventure tire. Eh, they have dirt bike tires that fit. They got yeah. a lot of dirt. Uh, that surprises me that there's not like a tire vendor because I could see people wanting to ride to the event yep. on a street tire, get there and be like, okay, throw those knobbies on because I'm going right. to go hit the trails, go do the weekend, and then thanks for the tires, put my street ones back on. I would tell you to bring the tires that you're going to ride on the bike already because even the guy that, because he was the only one there, he was booked all day, every day. People were waiting for hours to get their tires changed. That seems like an obvious thing to kind of have there. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I was I, I was wondering if the other companies were kind of watching to see what's going on because because Motaz dude was busy all day. Hmm. Um, there's no real mechanics there, but you know everybody seemed to know what they're doing. It's a real big sort of village mentality. As soon as somebody has a problem, everybody jumps on it and helps them, kind of like a track day. Yeah, I was going to say, it kind of sounds like a track day. Right. It's, it's exactly. Minus the tire service. <laughs> honestly, if you've done track days, you're prepared for this thing. But the difference is you're going on your motorcycle, you're bringing your tent with you. You're going to hang out for three or four days and just, there's showers there if you want to take a shower. I mean, they've, they've thought of everything. It's well put together. This was the 10th year. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, Tour Tech Rally obviously is like one of the best known yep. uh, adventure riding rallies in the industry. Um I mean, so, like, did you ride every trail? I did or not. did you just kind of, like, do the same one over and over? Like, what's the format on that? I, I only did a couple of the rides. I, I mostly just hung out. But basically, there are 14 rides. I think there are basically, let's call it 15 rides, because there's essentially five of each level. Mm-hmm. So you could be a brand new beginner. I just bought my ADV bike. I want to go learn how to do this stuff and co- go there and have something to do. Um, whereas you can be, like, tried and true you know, like been riding forever. I know how to get around and all the different trails and still have something to do. So you're never going to be bored. I'm more of a social dude. So once I got there, I just started socializing with everybody, but no, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I saw people there that were doing rides all day and some of the rides are only half an hour long and some of the rides are like six hours long. So you got to kind of pick what okay. you want to do. Uh, and there's something in between for everybody. Um, what else? Honestly, just show up prepared, bring all your gear with you. Um, I would say make sure you have waterproof gear just because it's in that that time of year where rain is sort of... You're in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, it's going to rain on you. Yeah. There's no two ways about it. Um, what else? That's really all I got. It's a okay. good time. Let's go next year. I'm yeah. going again. Sign me up. Yep. I'm ready. Put me in, coach. Let's go, coach. Got to figure out a bike, but we can figure that out. Maybe we can do a podcast uh, recording there. Two up on a GS. Whoa. Horrible yeah, idea. horrible. That sounds like a horrible idea. No. How about two separate bikes? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Well, let's see how this Goldwing thing goes before we start talking anything else. It might be a total disaster. I have so much faith for that Goldwing thing. It'll be a thing. I don't know if it'll be a recurring thing, but it'll be a thing. <laughs> oh, good gracious! Good gracious! Um. What? I don't know. I don't know how to segue to this next this next thing, Shaheen. It's um, I did not have nearly as good of a week as as you did. Not that this didn't affect you as well, but uh, I think it affected everybody in a certain level. Yeah. Um. So we we had the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb, and uh, we lost a good friend of ours uh, during that, uh, Carlin Dunn, and. Uh, 
And I'm not gonna lie to you, man. It's been um, it's been a tough two, two, three weeks now. I don't, I don't know how long it's been. Like I've lost, I've lost track of the time because it's it's just one of those things. Uh, I, I've known Carlin for for a long time. Actually, I knew him before I even started Asphalt and Rubber. I knew him when I lived in Santa Barbara. I was just kind of getting into motorcycles. I mean, we're the same age. You know, and Santa Barbara is a small town. Oh, yeah. There's only like so many bars you can go to, so many restaurants. You run into each other, and I, I ran into him a few times, and you know, downtown. And I think I don't think I really met him until we went to a track day together, or we were at the same track day. I How old were you at the time? I just bought my Street Fighter, so that would make it 2009. It's ten years ago. Like ten years to the dot, so pretty much the beginning of A uh, and R. That was I bought that Street Fighter right when I started doing asphalt and rubber full time. I right. just moved back to California, um, and then we got to know each other. I would say like on a professional relationship, and then kind of became friends outside of work. Um, you know, as as that continued, because I mean, it was funny when I first met Carlin. He was kind of like a, a too cool for school kind of guy. <laughs> You know, which is like every 18 year old, 20 year old in Santa Barbara, basically. Um, but then as you get to know him more and, 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 you know, as we like mature in life, you know, he's just, uh, just a really good guy. And I would describe him as effortlessly cool now. <laughs> That's because I, he blossomed, he blossomed well. I think he's our generation, Steve McQueen. That's fair. And, and, and I'll, and I'll throw it to you and I'll throw it to you like for a reason, right? Cause one, I think he's just, he's just a cool guy right like you meet him and you just like you just go like nice guy right does rides me a cool guy like he's just cool um but there's that that same part of he's in the uh the the i was gonna say remake it's like the sequel to on any sunday right so bruce brown did on any sunday and then dana brown his son did like uh uh like a sequel to it that featured Carlin pretty heavily and talked a lot about Carlin riding in Baja, which he Iron Man, which is insane. And I remember him telling me like the stories of like, just how far he was like physically pushing himself right. and his body. And, you know, he's like delirious and just basically, you know, on the verge of dying the whole time. And I think someone did die that year. Uh, it's an insane race, especially to do it the entire way by yourself. But he was that same, like, he's kind of in movie. He was he was transitioning from working the Ducati Santa Barbara dealership into, uh, like, a stunt driver, stunt rider career in Hollywood. And had already done a couple engagements with that. Um, we had dinner, like, a month before Pike's Peak or so. And he was telling me, like, he just did a commercial. He just got his SAG. He <laughs> just got, like, entered into the he's Screen Actors Guild right. and, like, all of that. And. It's just tough, man. It's just really hard to uh, to to think that he's gone, and it's been kind of an emotional roller coaster for um for the past uh, few weeks. Because, I mean, that Sunday Sunday was tough because the race day because no one really knew what was going on, right? And you get information that he's okay, and then you get information that he's not okay. And you get information that, no, he was waving to people. He was conscious. He was fine. And then you get information that, no, he's he died. He died on the scene. And it just, it was like a ping pong 
match. You know, the ball just going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And that that was like my entire Sunday. And I knew like two, three hours in when we hadn't really heard anything. Yeah. It's like you don't sit on good news. No, especially Carlin because he'd been sort of updating people. Yeah, pretty regularly. Well, you have to understand Pike's Peak. Like, there's a lot of there's a lot of factors involved there. Like, um, there there's just there is no cell phone reception. Right. There isn't really any wireless. There's I think there might be Wi-Fi at the cafe at the summit, but it's spotty. And there's just there just isn't good ways of communicating when you're at the mountain. And then the mountain itself and the race organization and just all of that just isn't a very high functioning communicating device. Yeah. So it's not uncommon to get bad information. It's not uncommon to get no information. So it didn't really bother me when it was like 1130 and we hadn't heard anything because I'm just like, it's Pike's Peak. Yeah. It could, Typical. The radio, the transponder could have died. <laughs> Because that's happened before. The radio, they could have just, like, there could have been out of cell phone range. Right. Like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. When it was like two o'clock, three o'clock, that was, we, I think we found out he was dead at three o'clock or so, 3 30. And um, it was around like, it was like an hour or two before that. And it was like, you know, we haven't heard anything that either he, he was really badly injured or he, or he didn't make it. And sure enough, you know, news comes out that he had, you know, passed away. And then, like Monday, just nothing seemed real. I mean, like you talk about the stages of grief, like the first one's denial. Yeah, like disbelief and denial. And like I woke up that day. I mean, I woke up like I had like a good cry. And then I woke up and was like, you know what? Like any minute now, Carlin's going to call my phone and be like, hey, bro, you got to take that story down where you said I'm dead because it's killing <laughs> my up. sponsors. Right. You know, I got things to think about. You're killing me here, buddy. Uh, you, you know, you screwed the story up. I don't know where you heard that, but. You know, because that was that was a level of disbelief, and like some of that is the ping pong, like the information going back and forth, and a lot of that has to do, I think, too, with uh, the local paper there, the Gazette, was really the only source of information coming off the mountain, and for a long time they were saying he was okay, and um, just as an aside, like we we could have like a whole conversation about that. As a journalist, that has worked Pike's Peak. Mm-hmm. I 100% understand how an inaccurate story like that can get published because I've seen firsthand how poorly the communication structure is. And I've seen how difficult Pike Peak as an organization is to work with as a journalist. Yeah. Um, they're the worst organization to deal with. I can also understand like the game of telephone, like, like, one, you know, okay, glass houses. What what journalist hasn't fucked up a story? Right. I've had a couple doozies in my day. Uh, I'm glad that I, I can I can probably count on one hand over my ten year period the the stories that are like like really messed up. Like, ooh, that one was wrong. But when you're working with a with a let's call it a source that's so difficult to get information from or good information from or accurate well, information from. And two, like so, like one of the things they were saying, like they were quoting Carlin's teammate Cody, and Cody's getting his information from, you know, who knows? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a game of telephone. It's a game of telephone, but you know what? And I'm sitting there going, like, if I'm a journalist and the teammate tells me that Carlin's okay, I'm going to believe it. And I'm going to run that story. Yeah. That's a credible source. So I don't fault someone for 
for that where it's like hey no our source was wrong like we had a good source the source just happened to be wrong and yeah. other people and there was other people out there saying similar things that corroborate the source like you're kind of doing all your due diligence and you're working within very difficult confines so it makes sense to me um but i will you know, at the same side like legitimately i think like part of my issues dealing with carlin's passing are directly a result of this bad reporting um but in a way they kind of get a pass and i think it's worth reading their story that they posted about the circumstances at the summit and how they were treated as journalists Mm -hmm. because that's there's been some issues with um that story and maybe some of the veracity of the statements that they make but i would say as a journalist that's covered pike's peak i 100 believe that i 100 believe that story because I've had similar experiences and I can see how that organization would act in that way. Um, I would say Pike's peak is not equipped to handle the most obvious of crises that would likely occur during its running. They're just, they just don't have that ability. It's like they never thought that someone might fly off the side of the mountain, even though it happens all the time. Right. So do you think that's an inability due to ignorance or, or you know, physical, uh, logistical disability? Their inability to handle media, or well, what's what, what specifically? Are you I'm asking? trying. To, I'm trying to decide whether I want to you know ward this carefully or not because we, we always sort of you know we used to jokingly talk about Pike's Peak and and the people that put it together. Then and, and that as a journalist, if you say anything untoward about them then they tend to lash back out at you and go, you know what? You're not welcome here. I don't care. Right. I don't care about that. I, I think it's kind of dumb because we've talked about this where like a, you know, an event like Isle of Man TT, for instance, right? It's 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 sort of a, they have a mentality of it takes a village to handle this thing. And so the entire community sort of steps in and uh, it's all on a volunteer basis and they have all these ushers everywhere that make sure that there's eyes on every yeah. uh I think I think you hit it around the head in the sense that the the best way to think about the Pike Speak is to look at the TT, and it helps that they're within weeks of each other. Right. And two out of the three times I've been to Pike's Peak was immediately after the TT, so it's really fresh for me. And the way I mean, very similar events where you have racing on public roads right. with motorcycles, uh, very high speeds, very dangerous, very dangerous event, very dangerous course. Yeah, like no margin for error. No margin for error. If you cr- a good crash at both those events is when you survive. But, and there's no getting around that. I mean, the TT puts like pads around telephone poles. They, they've done a pretty good job of trying to sanitize the course from like telephone poles and potholes right. and um, sewer cover lids and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's still a public road. Uh, and like, how much are you really going to change? But you're never going to make that safe. And it's the same with Pikes Peak. It's like, you're never going to make Pikes Peak safe. Right. And I don't have any issue with that. I ain't going to go race it. But that's the event. That's what makes it so spectacular. That's what makes it worthwhile to talk about. That's what draws these racers and these fans to come to it. If it was a sanitized race course, it would just be... MotoGP it's or another another or race right it would just be a racetrack race that's so that's why it's so special where the difference is is how the organizations operate the professionalism of the people who who work at them and just their ability to handle 
the varying degrees of situation that can arise, whether that's the weather, whether that's, um, you know, dealing with a technical partner or a, a sporting partner mm-hmm. or a fatality or fan, how to manage the fans, how to manage the money, how to manage all the things. And I would see there's great differences between the two organizations in terms of, of their gap. And, you know, we've talked before on like some of the changes I would have liked to see at Pikes Peak that you can see that are relevant at the TT in terms of the marshalling. You have line of sight across the whole course. You have volunteers with flags and radios and brooms. And, you know, a lot of them are motorcyclists themselves. Um, one of the things the TT does as well is they have traveling marshals who are X racers, who are medically trained, who know the course, like it's the back of their hand. They're right. on motorcycles and they circulate on the course and they can get to an accident within minutes and they're stationed at, you know, I think there's like five, six, seven of them. They're stationed around the course so they can, their response time's incredibly fast. Right. Going to be faster than an ambulance. Absolutely. Um, and so they can provide the first immediate aid, not to mention some of the marshals have medics at their stations. Like, you know, they do a pretty good job of having medical help and personnel at key places or that they can get to key places very quickly. But most importantly, they have the communication. They have eyes on the course. They have people with radios they are yeah. in constant contact. They have a, a plan for communication. You go out to a marshaling station. When there's a crash, every single person, every single marshal at that station knows what their job is. One person is looking down the track to see if a bike is coming. Another person's, you know, their duty, like two people are their duties to the bike. Another two people, their duties to the rider. Third guy, he's the one with the broom trying to get to, he's on debris. You know, everyone knows their job. And some of that just comes from, you know, a hundred years of TT experience where you have a fatality almost every year. Um, you know, you're going to unfortunately get good at managing that situation. And I think for Pikes Peak, that hasn't been the case. You look at the history of Pikes Peak. It's a very, very, very safe race. A uh, handful of fatalities over it's, right. you know, 90 plus years of running. Um, but the problem with Pikes Peak is it's a race that has changed dramatically in nature from how it used to be to how it is now. And in just the 10 years that I've been a journalist, we've seen the race change. We've seen it go from unpaved dirt road to fully paved mm-hmm. uh, road. And that changes the characteristics a ton. And we've seen media change and we've seen social media change. And we've seen cell phones and communication and the expectation of a communication mm-hmm. change. And I think the biggest issue at the core of Pikes Peak is this is an organization that still thinks and acts like it's a 1970s good old boy car enthusiast race that was just kind of for fun because it's still very much car culture. It's still very much stuck in the old ways. It's still very much like if you're in, you're in, if you're not in, you're out. Right. And, um, and they've been really slow to make that, like realize the issue of what the road being paved means for this race. And in terms of uh, safety and, and how they have to change as an organization and as an event because of that. And I think that's the fundamental, one of the fundamental hurdles. I think there's a corporate culture that's that's a little messed up too. But I think from like just looking at just a mechanic issue of 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 organization and planning and structure, those are, those are their, the touch points. And it all leads to, you know... I don't think I don't think Pikes Peak can do anything that would have brought Carlin back. I don't think there's a Pikes Peak didn't do this, or if Pikes Peak had done this, Carlin still lives because 
the the crux of his crash is the road conditions or it's, or you could argue it's just racing yeah and i'm not one of those people that's like well they should have repaved the road it's like you're gonna repave that entire mountain road every year that's not gonna happen this is still a public road and it's still like the tt it's still public road like you you ride the course as it's presented to you now was the road at the summit just ridiculously bad that no motorcycle should have been racing on a period that i don't know wasn't there haven't seen it I know there's some videos from some of the car journalists go over and they describe it like a whoops section. I've heard mm-hmm. the whoops section quote a few times. And you can sit there like, well, you know, should you be racing on that? And maybe that should have been looked at. I don't know. But I do know you race the mountain. You race the mountain that day. If the mountain's cold, you race a cold mountain. If the mountain's mm-hmm. wet, you're racing a wet mountain. If the mum- mountain's bumpy, you're racing a bumpy mountain. That's just, that's part of that, of what racing there is. And... You know, I don't think I don't think there's too much there in terms of of how it particularly deals with Carlin, but I do think there is some larger issues that his death brings about that need to be discussed. And my biggest worry, knowing the Pikes Peak organization as as the experience that I've had there and in my interactions with them, is that I don't think the hard questions and I don't think the hard discussions are really going to occur. I don't think that's, I don't think they have a culture where that sort of thing can happen. And that's, that's tough. And truthfully, that's what has driven me to the point of where I don't really want to cover Pikes Peak more. I'm not going to cover Pikes Peak anymore. I'm not going to cover anything affiliated with Pikes Peak. There is no multi-strata Pikes Peak in my world anymore. Right. Um, Just because like. It's not because Carlin's gone. It's because of everything else that happened around it. It could have been. It could have been someone else, and maybe because it's Carlin, it it, it strikes a more personal note for me because this is my friend. Yeah, this is a person. I literally, I literally had like a five hour dinner with the guy, like a month before this happened. Um, but like it makes me very like just like this is wrong. Like this, this the way this is being hap- this is being organized and the way this is being run and the culture and. And and then watching how they handled the situation at the summit with the Gazette and all the other journalists that wrote there and the photographers, I'm like, this is just wrong. I'm not going to go to an event where they treat media like that and where that is the standard operating procedure for dealing with with tragedy. Because I can tell you that's not how the TT is. Mm-hmm. Um, so and and other sporting events, that's not how that that is. That's not how that's not how. It's not how the world works in my mind. I'm a very big First Amendment person. I think if you had to pick all the amendments out of the lineup, that's my that's my guy. Because um, I, I 100% believe in the power of a free press and what that means for our uh, de- democratic society. And so any sort of censorship from a third party, I think is wrong. Uh, the answer isn't you know censoring speech, it's more speech. So to see how that has always been an issue. It was always an issue when I was there. It's always been an issue since then. Uh, I've had so many X racers, so many X teams, so many people that have been to the mountain who have had the same experience message me since we we wrote about it and saying, you know, thank you. I wanted to say the same thing. I was just worried it wasn't going to get a credential next year, right. or I was worried it was going to be blacklisted. Right. That's the problem. I think a lot of a lot of um, let's call them organizations that that behave that way. I think their thought process is we're going to stay steadfast in our. Uh, traditions and beliefs and whatever they are and that everybody else that wants to be a part of it is going to have to bend to our will 
So we're going to stay the same. We're going to stay the course. We're never going to change. And even though their circumstances are going to change around this, we're not going to change how we are. We're not going to change our general mm -hmm. uh, procedures. And everybody else that wants to be a part of this has to kind of bend to our will or else they can fuck off. And that, that's not, you know, I agree with you. I, I think that I think that having lost a friend like that isn't necessarily the fault of the organization. I think the part of it that kind of, and you and I had this conversation four years ago, by the way, because, you know, I learned about your love for the Multistrata Pikes Peak because I've got the same soft spot for it as you do. And you've actually, I had it for the longest time on my on my computer screen, way before I knew you, a picture of um, Greg Tracy's 555 bike. Yeah. With that really cool Akrapovich exhaust sticking yeah. out of it. You taking that picture. So when I first showed it funny, to you, there's a funny story about that picture. We'll talk well, about so it offline. You, I think you may have told me this story, but yeah, I'd like to talk about it again. But I remember being like, dude, this is the coolest thing ever. And that was like four plus years ago. And even then, four plus years ago, you kind of sneered. You're like, yeah, I don't really like going to Pike's Peak. And from a fan's perspective, I was like, are you fucking out of your mind? That's the coolest race in America. It's the last of like that pure, you know, for all intents and purposes, deadly race, which yeah. is the kind of the draw to it. But from from a if you if you take a minute and kind of sit back and look at the whole thing, you know the the number one red flag that I throw up to anything like this if I don't see it is a lack of communication because shit can and will go wrong, right? Even if statistically Pikes Peak is less de deadly than the TT, Isle of Man TT, yeah. that that still doesn't mean that they shouldn't work on their communication because if something happens at the summit and it takes it minutes, even it's too long, right? If something happens to you as a racer and you go off the course where someone can't necessarily see you, now you're sitting there waiting. And how how's anyone going to know? I remember it was my first year. Pretty sure. Well, was it my first year? I'm pretty sure it was my first year. I have to double check it. Is it my first year or second year? Um, And I'm covering Pikes Peak. And... Uh, Greg Tracy, again, mm -hmm. uh, fantastic writer, fantastic human. Oh, I yeah. got to see him at Carlin's funeral and I hadn't seen him in a really long time and it felt good to see him. Uh, I, I really like him as a person. They're kind of like the same, you know, in a lot of ways, like I think, I, I don't know this for Carlin and I never talked about this and I, I kind of wish I had because I think on a certain level, Greg really influenced Carlin and I think Carlin had a lot of respect for Greg and I can kind of see Carlin following kind of Greg in his footsteps because right. Greg kind of made his name at Pikes Peak and then transitioned into doing a lot of stunt car driving. Right. And then now he's like producing and he, he's like a big, he's a big wig in, in stunt busy. driving. You watch a lot of Hollywood movies, stay for the credits, you'll eventually see Greg's oh, yeah. name on there um, for the stunt vehicles. And then so what's interesting to me that Carlin kind of made that same pivot right before this all happened. Um, and I don't think that's an accident whatsoever. Um, I see a lot of the the two of them in each other. But I remember that first year, Greg went off the course, and it was scary. You know, when we're with the team, and the organization's literally like, I forget what the two markers were that they said he went off at, but let's say it was like engineers, which is a very famous hairpin turn, left-hand turn, and devil's playground, mm -hmm. which is kind of like where the tree line ends there's like a parking lot up there and that starts like the very top section which is basically just boulders and if you know the course like 
there is miles of road between <laughs> those two points. And you're like, so he went off between here and there. And they're like, yeah, we don't really know. He, we just know he's between these two spots because we saw him in engineers where there's like a marshal of a radio. Right. And we didn't see him at devil's playground where the next marshal of a radio is. And you're sitting there going like, do you guys not see the problem here? <laughs> he could be in a tree. <laughs> right. He could be fine. He could be needing immediate medical assistance and you don't know where he is. Right. And it was like a good half an hour before like, oh, no, yeah, he's fine. He broke his arm. I forget. he Something happened. He wasn't like 100% okay. But it was it was one of those things where like a lot of time went by before we found out where he actually was and where it actually happened. And um, he crashed like in the dirt section, so it wasn't too bad. But that was my first like you don't know where he is. You don't know. He's between these two points. It's like saying he's somewhere between the starting line and the finishing line. You're like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. And this is an acceptable thing to say to someone. And, and, and I was like, why? And I remember seeing like what that did to the team and what that did to his family and his loved ones. And it's like that uncertainty, that not knowing. And like, it wasn't that like they knew or like someone knew, but the guy talking to us didn't know. Like they just didn't know. Right. They're going to have to send a car up there and go looking for him. And you're just like, that's still okay that's the part that gets me and that, and that starts like that started the long trend that moment i think is a pinpoint moment where i had my long downward trend with with pike speak as a race and as an organization because it's a tough race just in general like as a journalist as a team as a rider it's tough because you spend an entire week before the race waking up at 2 a.m mm-hmm. to get to the mountain at 3 a.m to be on the bikes as the sun is rising you do a you know handful of hours of practice runs, and around nine a.m. you pack it all in because now the roads open to the public, and you go and you start your day, and you and that's hard, and it's altitude, and it's cold, yeah. and it's windy, and it's tough, and you're tired, and you're fatigued, and it's all these things. So it's just that's just that's just the logistically physical difficultness. I don't think that was a proper sentence. I like it. Physical of, difficultness. Of logistical, physical. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's just what that is. And then you're going to throw all the other, like, let's say the dysfunctional parts of it. Like, you're just never going to overcome the fact that like, Hey, you're going to have to wake up super early to go do this race. Like that's, that's what doing this race means. Um, and then we saw the issue when, uh, Carlin's on the electric bike. And when he was out there with the Ducati team and it's just, yeah, it's one of those things like it really it's really been a long time where I've just kind of been not super happy about it and and basically stopped covering it. I mean, like, you know, we're making a very definitive thing now on Asphalt Armor is like, hey, we're not going to cover this anymore. But in truth, like we weren't really covering it that much afterwards anyways. After I think the last race I went to was Carlin on the electric bike mm-hmm. with lightning. And I was like, I'm like, you know, what? I'm kind of just done with this. And I think Carlin called me once. Um after that when he was back with the Ducati team and I think I was out of the country and then I was supposed to go to this latest one and it just didn't quite work out. Like we were supposed to like Ducati wanted me to ride a bike out to Pikes Peak. And I was like, I don't really want to do that. I can't take that much time off. I don't like riding that far that fast. Like, yeah, we talked about that on the last uh, yeah. podcast. Covering a thousand miles in yeah. a couple days is just not something I want to do. Yeah, and, Cause they were trying to do the whole all roads, all roads to, to Pikes Peak. Pike Peak. Yeah. yeah. And like it just for whatever reason, like that just the whole thing just kind of fell through, and and it wasn't 
and partially it's because I'm not there trying to drive it to make it happen because right. I'm like, I don't really want to go do this. Um, and that brings up like a ton of survivor's guilt for not being out there to, to support Carlin and see him race. But um, it was one of those things where like that race had already kind of run its course for me. And then now it's just like, like, what are you guys doing? Like, it, the, I guess what it is, I guess the thing that gets me, Shane, this is, this is where it comes down to. And this is why I reached the decision is I kind of made my mind up, let's say like four years ago, three, four years ago. At least four years ago, yeah. And and had it in my head that things were a certain way and I was going to kind of stop dealing with it and then stop paying attention. And Carlin's death and seeing the reaction of Pike's Peak and seeing Pike's Peak in action again showed me that nothing had changed. So here's this nearly half decade of time and nothing has changed. Right. And it's like, really? Like, nothing has changed? You guys are still up to the same old tricks? Okay. Yeah. Then now, we, we were already unofficially broken up. Now we're officially broken up. Um, and that's too bad because, I, I truthfully, I want to see the race go go on. You know, there's a lot of talk on whether or not Pike's Peak is going to continue going forward and with, with motorcycles. Um, you know, it's funny because, you know, I had riders telling me, you know, at the riders meeting this year, they're literally saying like, Hey guys, be careful out there. Cause all it takes is one big, uh, accident. Someone getting really hurt or someone or worse dying. And that's it for motorcycles at Pikes Peak. Yeah. And then lo and behold, what happens? I mean, as soon as that happened, that, that conversation came up. I mean, it's always going to come up. I and mean, every time someone crashes at the TT, everyone's like, this should be the last year of the TT. One more death is too many. And like, I don't, I don't get on that bandwagon. Yeah. Like that's that's not my issue with bike speak. That's not my issue with this race. It's a dangerous thing. Motorcycles are a dangerous thing. Life is a dangerous thing. Embrace the idea that you're not going to live forever and just live for the what? moment. I know, right? Just um, ordered a MIPS helmet for nothing. <laughs> for nothing, Jensen. I'm out here. I know, right? <laughs> but um uh you can still mitigate the dangers you can still be professional and put together the most professional race possible and i want to see pikes peak be that race i want to see motorcycles still race there um i don't know if that happens or not we'll see there's there's already some discussions they might uh carlin's mom romy wrote a very sweet letter saying that she thought Carlin would want to see motorcycles continue to race there and i would i would tend to agree with that sentiment i think he would want to see motorcycles race there I don't know if his opinion matters or not. Um, <laughs> I say that as a friend of his, but you know, like, I don't know if like, I don't know if my opinion matters or not, you know, but it's just, uh, uh, I do hope whatever happens that there's an organizational change in the way the race works. I hope that this is the wake up call. I hope that, you know, Carlin was like a favorite son to them. Carlin was family to, to so many people at Pikes Peak. And so many teams and and individuals. Um, I hope that's the wake up call. Like, hey, we we need to have a hard, a long hard look at ourselves and how we're doing this, and really look at where we're weak and do like a, you know we call it, in business we call it a SWOT analysis. Right. Your strengths, your weaknesses, your threats, um, your opportunities. I just did that kind of dyslexic. But like they need to do, they need to do a real SWOT analysis of their of their operation because there's holes there that aren't getting filled, and um, 
I think when you fill those holes, it makes it a lot easier to say like, and I think that's what the TT is a great contrast where you fill those holes and it's a lot easier to say like, this is a dangerous race run in the most safest way, most professional way possible. That's all we can do. The yep. race climbing Mount Everest is always going to be dangerous, but if you've got good Sherpas, if you've got good guides, if you've got a good lead climber, you can do it as safely as, as you can. It's still climbing Mount Everest. It's still the tallest mountain in the world. It's still the dead zone, you know, above, uh, was it 22,000 feet or 20,000 feet? It still is what it is, yep. but you're not going up there in a bathing suit and, you know, sparklers thinking that you're going <laughs> to summit. Um, no, that's a very good point. I, I think, I think that, um, it seems like our conclusion always ends up being more or less the same. Anytime we talk about something that has to do on the professional grade of our favorite pastime activity and it's that our hope is that something changes and progresses to the next level for it to survive right if you're if you're going to continue on doing this motorcycling thing whether you're a manufacturer or a, a race organizer or a dealership if you keep doing the same old shit then you're not going to survive yeah. but if you if you start looking forward and you start seeing as you put it you know kind of analyzing what needs to be worked on and you can be honest with yourself and answer those hard questions without freaking the fuck out and you know banning people from your organization then there's a conversation to be had i've never seen an organization be successful that was an organization that pushed away the people that challenged it right and that's the thing that like gets me when you see them banning racers, when you see them banning journalists, when you see them taking away photographers' cameras, um, you're like, you know, like you only learn. <laughs> I mean, you, you can learn to a certain extent, like the peop the peop the praise that people give you. But I've always learned more from the criticism. I don't know about you, Shaheen, but like when someone says, like, "Hey, I saw you do that thing and you did it wrong," yeah, and maybe you know, constructive criticism, like, "I saw you do it wrong. It'd be better if you did it this way because that's gonna help you, you know, do the thing right." Right that's how we learn. That's how we grow. And yeah. I think that's the feedback loop that's been missing to a certain extent. Because that, like I said, like it's that culture. Like, there's no culture of like learning from their mistakes. There's no culture of listening to the criticism and taking it to heart. I don't know. Well, don't know. I'm going to cross my fingers and hope that they, somebody, somebody steps in and says, Hey, we gotta, we gotta have a, a difficult conversation here. And the, you know, instead of just immediately going to a default of let's just take motorcycles away, let's just take away this thing, let's just take away that thing, how can we make it better? How can we make it where we're more proactive? And in the case of Pike's Peak, it almost, I know it's easy to sit here and be a critic, right? And say it's probably just as easy as having more volunteers and having more marshals and having a little more safety uh, vehicles up on this mountain because on the grand scheme of things, it's shorter by a large margin than the, the the tt yeah it's it's 12 something miles long right it's um 156 turns i mean you could probably get away with 150 marshals because you could have one at each turn yeah. uh, i don't think that's like the silver bullet i don't think that fixes it but that's that's one part of it it's a step i think the bigger part is is gonna be a cultural thing and it's gonna be leadership and it's gonna be procedure and foresight and the 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 soft skills as it were um but like i can tell you like when you're on the mountain there's no like as a journalist there's no point person for you to contact for when you need information there's no like pr person that's like introduced themselves and like hey if you need anything let me know i couldn't even tell you who the press officer is at pike speak i don't even know if there is one huh i'd have to like go through my email it just organically gets put together 
Yeah, you know, it's just crazy. Um, you're there for a week too. It's not like it's not like some of these races or these events where you're just there for like a half second. Right. You're like, oh, I'm just there for uh, you know, this one day event. You're like, like one motor show, great example. Hey, I'm just going to go to the show for six hours. You don't expect like a press officer to come introduce themselves. But we were there for like a, a week, and we're all we're all standing up there freezing our asses off at the same spot. Uh, you know, it's just funny like that. Uh, we got that experience at the Tour Tech rally. Uh, I mean, different people that put together the rally showed up at one point or another to say, hi, how's it going? What do you need? What, did you, what would you like to see different next yeah. year? And it's like, oh, man, let me shake your hand. You're awesome. Because that's how you do it. That's right. how you're successful. Um, I, I do want to give a shout out to our good friend, Rennie. Um, I, think the, I think the greatest tragedy in this whole this whole event is the loss of Carlin. But um, a distant second tragedy is the fact that it 100% uh, overshadows what Rennie did on two wheels and what Rennie did on the mountain that day. And the record that he set and the, the work that the Aprilia team put into that effort. And it's like, it's this unfair thing where like, you know, I think everyone's going to put like a little asterisk on his record. Right. He, he destroyed that record, by the way. Yeah. It, 944. It was, yeah. Get out of town. Yeah. There's a great photo of him. I forget what turn it is, but he's coming around the left-hand turn, and he's got that thing, that Aprilia Tuono, just fucking slideways, and he is on it. Ten tenths, full focus. One of the most impressive things I think you can do on a motorcycle. And it completely, like, you're going to put an asterisk on that because what Carlin was supposedly going to do a 932, which is not a time I think is real. <laughs> If you look at the split times, you know, he's like four or five seconds ahead of Rennie uh, through the first three sectors. I mean, there's a, some of there's a GoPro that will show us exactly what kind of pace he was on. Um, but Carlin wasn't the fastest at the top of the the mountain. Uh, I believe Lucy, the, the girl from Germany, was. Um, so, like, it's kind of like weird. Like, you come up with this record, this number, this hypothetical number of 900, 9 minutes, 32 seconds. And you're just like, I don't know where that's grounded in but obviously I, I have less information than the people that came up with it but Rennie rode an amazing race and if the circumstances had just changed enough where Carlin crashed and was okay Carlin would have been the first one to walk up and run and said you were the better man today you ran the better race you rode within the the confines of what the the mountain would allow that right. day and you shattered the record and good on you and um, because the outcome was a little different, I think we look at Rennie's accomplishment a little different. And I don't know if that's fair. I don't think that's fair to Rennie. No, I don't think it is either. I don't think it's fair to Carlin. Um, because, you know, they were both were riding their hearts out. And uh, I'm proud. I'm really proud of Rennie. You know, he's going to actually be here tomorrow. He's crashing at my place. Nice. He's in town for a thing. And I want to make sure, like I tell him, like, you know what? A lot of people are really proud of you because yeah. you did a, an amazing thing and it got overshadowed by a really horrible thing. I and, think it'll be good. Uh, I think it'll be good to catch up with him and kind of sit down and have a Mountain Dew with the guy. Yeah. Now he's not on his race diet anymore. He's a lot That's more right. fun to be around. Project Six Pack out the door. <laughs> out the door, buddy. Just like that. <laughs> hey, speaking of Project Six Pack being out the door, uh, I hear the company that makes bike for uh, big fellas like me had a little... Shindig well, with you. Yes, yeah, so that's what Rennie's in town for. Um, we've got the Harley Davidson Livewire International Press Launch occurring right this very second in Portland, Shaheen. Did you did you see what my buddy Steve Camrad named it? 
<laughs> no. The silent Bob. The silent Bob. Because you got the fat Bob, the street Bob. Silent Bob. Silent Bob. I'm sure they uh, kick that one around the office in Milwaukee. I, if it doesn't get passed on, I hope somebody that buys one of these things calls it Silent Bob. <laughs> Jay and Silent Bob. <laughs> Someone named Jay needs to buy a, a live wire so it can be Jay if and your Silent name Bob. Is, if your name is James, Jason, anything Jay-like, you need to buy a Silent Bob. I will be so fucking happy. Jensen? Can Jensen, Jensen? buy? You could be a Jay. You're a Jay. My my European col- colleagues call me JB a lot, so we could just lop the B off. Just J. Hey J. And your Silent Bob. Um, how was your Silent Bob? So I got to write it a week ago. Tell me, ask me your questions, and I will impart all. Well, hold on, to hold you. on. I'm, uh, l- let me pull up the uh, the because I put it out there for our dear listeners to ask their questions, and some did. So let's see here. First question: <laughs> Did it make it out of the city? Where did you guys ride? Uh, we rode up Skyline. So oh. we went, we, we started, uh, at the Jupiter hotel on, uh, what's that called? Burnside. Burnside. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I'm with you. Went across Burnside bridge, went up skyline road, um, like old Germantown road, loop back on a skyline, went to where it goes to the gravel road and came back. Ended up being about a 50 mile ride. Yeah. So how was so it? Yes, they made it out of the city. What was the, what was the the battery life looking like after 50 something miles we were because that's pretty variated riding like you're going 30 to 60 70 miles an hour basically yeah so we all pretty much a consensus had um 20 battery life left after uh um that ride so quick little gorilla math here that was like 65 miles of range okay that we were working with but understand like once we got off once burnside kind of turned into skyline we were ripping you guys opened it up i mean we weren't going slow okay so you were using the power i was using the power in fact in fact when we were doing the photo stops we had like a little bit of a long straightaway i made a point to just see how fast the damn thing would go pinned it as hard as i could how fast it went went about 110 that before i ran out of road not before i ran out of. did it get to 110 in a in a hurry Mm, got to 100 in a hurry. Oh, really? It just fizzles out after that, basically? After that, things kind of slow down. Um, Zero to 16, three seconds, they're, they're claiming? I mean, sure. That's just all their little hashtags. I, I think, think are, zero to 60 times are the stupidest they're, metric they're, for It's an old, antiquated thing, and people still use it because I think it gives you some form of reference, I think, as to how quick it is. You know what? Like, First of all, like the difference between like 2.8 seconds and 3 seconds or 3.2 is, is just... I don't know. It's the same. It's the same in my mind. And second, like so much of that is the rider. Right. And I'm just in there going like that, that half second that I just described, that is easily the the level of variation in my ability to launch a motorcycle. D- did it like, make it easy for like you to launch you're, it? You're within the margin of error. Yeah. How easy was it to launch it? Like, is there a the throttle? Does it feel like there's traction control, anti-wheelie, all that stuff, or no? No, you don't really... There's no real risk of doing a wheelie. And p- and truthfully, the way... This is my biggest gripe on the live wire. The throttle is so rubber bandy, like, bullshit Harley huh. throttle. Like, like, you turn that thing, like, one and a half times around to get to full stop. And the first, like, quarter turn, like, just about nothing happens. And it's just super vague and shitty. It's just... It's not... 
like a one-to-one throttle. It's not like a normal street bike throttle. It's like a cruiser throttle where no one gets on the gas very it's hard. A street glide throttle. I yeah. Get it. It's a silent Bob throttle. And it doesn't, and it doesn't, it ruins the experience a little bit because the, the great thing about electric motors is how connected you can be between your right hand and your rear wheel. And they've just completely muted that and made it garbage junky for no good reason in my mind. And you go through the different modes and I'd be like, okay, maybe that's like street mode. Yeah. Let's put it in sport mode. The only difference between street mode and sport mode that's the rider can tell is how much uh, regenerative braking there is, how which is basically how much engine braking is there, there less is. less of it in, street, in sport mode? Yeah. Uh, in sport mode, there's way more. Oh, wow. Really? And like, truthfully, like, that's about it. And you're just like, oh, well, that's The dash dumb. doesn't turn red or something and like get no. heavy metal on you? Hmm. No. Um... But beyond that, the bike's quite good. Like it, it handles quite well. It's still heavy. She's a big girl, but the brakes are good. Side to side's good. I bet you could drag an E on it if you wanted to. The clearance is pretty good. I think I read forty-five degrees. Oh, that's what an Indian FTR is. I don't know what the what the Harley one is. I didn't see that on the spec sheet that they gave us. But the thing that killed me was. We go into this ride. They still didn't give us a spec sheet until like two minutes before we were about to hop on the bike. You're like, you know, it'd be really great to know uh, what kind, like what I'm working with here. Um, I mean, was you, there a PR manager there kind of yeah, selling like, you the bike and telling you it's history and all that well, stuff or no? No, the CEO, Matt Levitich, came out no and, and gave us the, the good talk. And he never shows up to press launches. Um, and his whole spiel was, this is not about the bike. This is about the rider. It's about the experience. We want you to talk about the experience. And you're like, yeah, you guys are a lifestyle brand. You've been making your entire right. thing on over, not on, t- on spec sheet, but on the experience. And I think truthfully, that's the part of like, you're not understanding about this new generation of, of rider. Like the riders you're trying to get do care about the spec sheet. Yeah. So this actually kind of goes, this next question I think works with that. Um, somebody asked. Initially, I thought this question was silly, but now I'm thinking about it, and I, I don't think it is. I think the way they worded it kind of made me scratch my head because they say, how do you think it compare, compares to a similar bike? But then they said, like the Triumph Street Triple. I don't think they're very similar at all. But if you were to answer it, I mean, what would be a bike that you would compare this to, and how would you think it compares? So first of all, it's not a cruiser. Right. So the Street Triple, I, I made a face right when you said that because I was like, oh, what a stupid thing to compare it to. And then I was like, well, same not the position. craziest thing right. to compare it to because it's I mean, the street triple is still like a like a street fighter type bike, right? Roadster, whatever you want to call it. I would call the live wire like an electric naked or an electric standard. Back when standard used to be a thing, it's yeah. like an electric standard. It's just your basic motorcycle. It's not a cruiser. It's not a sport bike. It's not like a street triple. It's like an FC07. Yep. In fact, I would probably compare it to an FC07. Really. A $30,000 FC07. Um, $30,000 FC07. That's not really fair. I mean, if you're yeah, going to look at direct not. comparisons, you're going to look at the Zero SR, Zero SRF. Those are your electric bikes. Energica Eva, I think, is on the sportier yeah. end of the spectrum, but it's electric. It's naked. Okay. Um, on the gasoline side, yeah, FC07 if you want to talk budget, but... Um, you could easily throw Monster Twelve Hundred in there. Um, R nine T. If yeah, R nine T is a great. That's a good example. Yeah. Um, KTM is a little too sporty. Triumph. I mean, if it's anything from the Triumph line, it's probably more like a Bonneville, but it's not. 
It's like a Bonneville and a Speed Triple. Not really. Like the old, what was it, the T-Bird? There's really nothing comparable in the Triumph, to be honest. So, well, then let's ask this question. Um, What would you say the bike is good at? Nothing. I no, mean, it's like, good. No, I should it's take gotta it be highlights. It's gotta be I something. Gotta, I, gotta, I gotta say that that that's that's wrong. If you'd said, "What is the bike great at?" I'd say nothing. What is it good at? It's good at a lot of things. It's a good bike. It's not a great bike. Okay. Um, top five best things about it, I guess. Um, top five. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing that like really stands out because I think I think the throttle really killed the electric drivetrain for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's got a good good electric drivetrain. It's got good torque. You good get on it. To it? pretty good sound like what what the rider's gonna hear i think it's a good sound it's you know it's different it's got that bevel gear tie fighter thing going on right. i wouldn't say it's overly loud i think some of the electrics have done a better job of playing that up but it makes a cool sound it, it, the advantages that it has going for it is the advantages that come with all electric bikes where you start realizing that the sound that one you can hear sounds you never heard before like your knees scraping the ground and you know, the wind rushing through your helmet and being able to talk to people while you're on the bike at like a stoplight and um, actually like have a conversation and, and just generally like for me, riding an electric motorcycle has always been akin to when I was a kid and I, you know, take my bicycle and I push it up to the tallest hill I could find <laughs> and, just and then just bomb all the way straight down. <laughs> That's what riding an electric motorcycle for me. We still do uh, downhill races. Like, yeah, but it's just like that wind in the hair, right. wind on the face, and there's like a purity to it. There's no noise except the wind rushing by. It's the same with an electric bike, um, and that's great. Uh, but but I would say like the rest of the bike, it's competent. It's it's a little vague in the front, but I mean, no more than I would expect on like a monster or right. or an FC07. Like it's not a sport bike. It's not a sport bike position. So it feels pretty good. The chassis feels set up well. The brakes are good. The fit and finish is good. The uh, dash and the controls are all good. It does the weird Harley thing where your turn signals are on oh, one yeah, on yeah. each thumb, which I BMW think is and Harley love that stupid thing. Um, it's funny when you get used to it and ride a regular motorcycle. You you're like I have to think about where my turn signal is. Yeah, it's just a little <laughs> bizarro. But if that was the only bike you own, it wouldn't be a, a big deal. Um. Everything's good. Everything's good on it. Uh, um, they've got an interesting connection package with it that feels very 1.0 to me, just in terms of their thinking. I mean, like Bluetooth connectivity? Is that so what it's got Bluetooth connectivity, but also like there's an app you download and you can subscribe to. First year's free, and then you have to pay a subscription, but it's like it's got a, a pretty interesting bike management system in terms of like showing your your like charging times and all that and finding the oh, so like all charge points and paying for chargers right and um what is the charge time? uh uh an anti-theft device Ooh. um you know like so there's some smart things like that um the the killer feature and this is this is what separates it from other bikes is the dc fast charging that's the way the way Harley is going about its charging, I think, is the correct way. Because um, they look, I think they really looked at like the use case scenario. Like, okay, you're gonna go use this bike to go from point A to point B, like your commute, right? Or you're gonna use this bike on a Sunday ride. Well, on your commute, and you, chances are you probably live within the range of this, especially like you're gonna get way better range in town than you are on the freeway. 
So chances are you're likely just going to charge it at night in your garage, in which case a level one charger makes sense because level one charger is going to take like eight, 10, 12 hours or whatever it is. Cause there are three, there's three kilowatt hours. What is this? 13 kilowatt hour pack. Do the math. Then it takes some time to balance out the pack. Right. Yeah, it'll be done. You plug it in at night. It's gonna be ready for you in the morning. And that's every garage probably has it a 110 uh, outlet, which is what you need for a level one charger. Right. Then there's that option. It's like, hey, no, I'm gonna go on a long ride. You know, I'm gonna go on the weekend with my buddies. And that's where like level one charger doesn't work at all because it's going to take like 10 hours. That's not feasible. Level two charger cuts that time in half and that's a six kilowatt hour. So in theory, in like an hour, you could get like half your range back, but it's still an hour. You know, like, like, yeah, if you're eating lunch, you know, you can extend your ride by 50%, but like, it's not. are Are you carrying that thing with you? No. Level two charger that that's. That's like your standard. Yeah. You can't carry your level right. two charger with you. I mean, you can have like the inboard charger, but you still, that's like a special wand type thing. You're not bringing the wand with you. You need to get that out of a 220 plug, um, 30 amp 220 plug. Is it, is it designed to be, um, a level two charger is like one of the most common chargers out right, there. So in can you go find one at a local charging yeah, station? Yeah, yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Like, so you go find one, you're still going to be stuck there for quite a while while at least an hour right like you're taking you an hour to get 50 percent of your charge back um and that's just not really feasible when you're out like trying to have fun and recreation um whereas like dc fast charging is considerably it's like four times faster than or it depends it depends because like it's not quite apple like they're not all the dc fast chargers aren't always like the same level wattage but it's going to be roughly four times faster than a level two and you're still basically charging it quickly to like 80, 85%, right. and then it trickles from there. So that's where you get to like, hey, in 20 minutes, I can charge my bike, my bike back up to 80, or I figure what Harley's quoting for their for their recharge time. Let me quickly look so I get it right. Um, uh, 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 um, full charge in one hour. They don't say the 80% time. Wow, okay. Um, but it's it's significantly less. I think full. Ch- I think eighty percent's like forty five minutes or half an hour. So is the plan to have these chargers at most major Harley dealerships? So so that's the thing. So every Harley Davidson dealership that's carrying live wire is going to have a DC fast charger that's publicly facing. Okay. DC fast chargers aren't as common as level two, but that's what everyone's putting in now because we realize like level two, level two would be like really handy in your house. Like some people put a level two charger in their house because it's like, hey, I can like come home. I can charge my car up a lot quicker. Right. I, I could like run errands and like go hundred miles, come home, charge my car up in that evening, still go back out and go do the thing. It's a little bit more practical than level one. I've been in this situation when I had a zero for a while where I went for a ride, did a ride, like drained the battery to right. zero, came in, parked uh, the bike, plugged it into the wall, started charging it on a level one, got a call a couple hours later. Hey, come into the city, have dinner with me. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, I know I need like at least two thirds of a battery pack to get to the city and back. And I am nowhere near that. And right. I won't be anywhere near that for, for a while. A while. <laughs> right. Whereas like if I had a level two charger that might've changed, it still would have been tight. But like the reality is like DC fast charging gets us closer to what it's like to be at a gas station Yes. in terms of like, Hey, I'm going to come in. I'm going to spend like 10 minutes here and I can leave again. And that can probably get you home to where then you can plug in. So long story short, 
I feel like level two is a dead end for us. It's better than level one, and that's why it got installed right. Um, so prevalently. But as far as like a future technology that we're going to build the backbone of this industry off of, it's a dead end. It's yeah. like I kind of look at it as the same as companies that are still putting like money into turbos and superchargers and and all like that. And it's like, yeah, the future isn't gasoline engines. No. The future is electric engines. Like. You should just stop developing that because it's just a dead like the useful lifespan of it. I mean, they got to sell stuff very, very finite. (laughs) So Harley had a real masterstroke there with with having a DC charger because I think it fits the use case of the bike way, way better, and it kind of future proofs the model. I think a little bit. Uh, I've seen some people talk about, well, there's more level two chargers. You're not going to find a DC fast charger. It's like, well, give it a year. And Harley's part of that solution. It's like we're building. I mean, in the U.S. alone, they're going to build 150 DC fast chargers plus because that's how many dealerships are taking this on. Do you think we're going to get a share of this? Because we talked about this like September. Yeah, probably not. Damn it. Come on. Yeah, I know, right? Um, yeah, and it's interesting to see like that whole that whole thing. But that that's the only thing I think like you can really hang your hat on for the live wire. Right. And I think that's where I have like a really hard time with the bike because at $30,000, the DC fast charger is the only thing that you can really tell me on why it's better than a zero. And I still think the zero SRF is really an overpriced machine for what it is. And like, that's like the end of the day, we're just like, like, like you know, 15 minutes ago, Sheen, I compared it to an FC07. Yeah. It's a fifth of the price. Right. There's nothing about that bike that Harley did. Like, like that's why I say like, the connectivity, it's interesting, but it's it's very 1.0 thinking. It's very like you didn't really sit down and think about what a cell phone or an LTE equipped motorcycle could do. Right. You didn't really think about it. It's like, oh, like we have a better anti-theft system. Oh, well, now I'm gonna buy it. I mean, like, cool. Like the, <laughs> right. don't get me wrong, like the anti-theft system sounds really smart. That's a great anti-theft system. But that's not going to get me to buy it. Like the thing that always got me with Tesla, it wasn't that their cars were electric. It's that they had features like autopilot where it's like, Hey, no, yeah, we, we figured how to, how to make a better car because we looked at like what a digitally connected car can do. We looked at what the car, the future is going to need to do. And I don't think Harley Davidson really got there. Like, Hey, you have a motorcycle that can talk to the cloud. You're, and you're like the lifestyle brand. You're all about like you wanted us to talk about the experience and the the group and the ride and not the bike. It's like, how are you not setting up like your own little social network? How right. are you not like connecting, you know, this to Facebook or Twitter to like, like, you're not even thinking that like those and those are not like great ideas, but you guys aren't even thinking like in that vein of it yet. Because their buyers who can afford $30,000 bikes are still that last well, breed that we always talk about they keep saying that this bike was geared towards younger riders and they're like well what younger rider because you're talking about me got 30 g's thrown around I for all the photos those are people my age <laughs> right. and i'm like i might have 30 grand for a motorcycle but do i have 30 grand for this motorcycle nope not and right now i think maybe that, maybe five years from now it'll be a different bike and i'll have more ability but this current motorcycle i understand that it's a starting point and, I, and i've been really pushing that a lot on the site because like this is the first bike this is the halo bike right the problem is, is like the halo bike isn't really doing anything special and it's not very premium. Like at $30,000, like I complained about the, the, the uh, smart pull in 701 premium motorcycle, the right. premium KTM. Yeah. Why do I have all these things that don't feel premium on it? And it's the same thing where I look at like the Harley. Okay. $30,000 motorcycle. What's super special. Like you don't even have like floating discs. Not that like you really need to, 
but you should. And you've got like the cheap Brembo calipers on there. You don't have the nice ones. And you still have uh, cast aluminum wheels. Like, why aren't you using forged aluminum wheels? Why aren't they carbon? Yeah, exactly. I'm like, like I'm paying $30,000 for a motorcycle. I want to feel like I paid $30,000 for a right. motorcycle. I feel like I paid $30,000 for a $15,000 motorcycle. I think what they've done is they've, they've built an electric motorcycle and they're still trying to sell you on, on the idea that, hey, we're building a motorcycle. Like, no, I know you're building a motorcycle. Do something extra now. You have this opportunity. They're pricing this. See, this is this is this is my number one worry of Harley Davidson is that they're so blind. Like they're the fish in the fishbowl. They can only see themselves. Right. And I can see like because they're like, oh, it's a Halo bike. This is the best bike ever. Da da da. And you're like, yeah, for Harley. But it's like as if you've never seen what Zeros made. You've never seen what Energica has made. You've never seen what other manufacturers that don't make cruisers have made. And like that's your reference point. Like you're telling me you want to get riders who are non Harley riders into the brand. Well, you need to start looking at the reference point that they're looking at. Mm-hmm. And like from a Harley point of view, I can look at how I can see how they look at this bike and be like, we fucking slam this out of the park, home run, thirty thousand dollars. Like this is the raddest, baddest, coolest Harley Davidson ever, and it's electric. <laughs> get excited. Whereas like I'm looking at I'm like cool electric FZ07, cool zero. I mean I think. I'd have to get on the zero site and really do the spec sheet comparison. There was someone saying like, you know, it's really close to the zero S. If I just look at the spec sheet really quick, I bet they're pretty right. No, not on the power side there. Oh, no, that's an S. SR. Yeah. I mean, it's close. It's not that far off from an SR 14. And that little fucker is how much money? Half the price. Yeah. I mean, even the SRF fully. I mean, it doesn't look is. anywhere near as cool. And you know, I think I think Harley makes a. I think the build quality of Harley is better, and it looks a better looking machine. And I'd probably prefer it. But like, you just sit there, and just like, where's the beef? You know, if I'm going to complain about Husky, if I'm going to complain about Indian, and say like, hey, where's the beef? Where's the premium? You're playing. You're charging me a premium price. Where's my premiumness? Right. Harley's committed that sin twice, twice over. You know, like it's it's way worse. And that's going to be the hard thing for them. I think they're still a little too blind to the hard to the non Harley Davidson side of the industry. So have they? I mean, were they out there sort of talking about? Uh, I know what they probably said, but do you think they were realistic about who's going to buy this bike and how they're going to sell a thirty thousand dollars motorcycle? Um, I don't think there's any expectation at Harley Davidson that they're selling more than like a thousand of these a year. Okay, and understand. That's, Selling that's a, a lot. thousand of these a year is actually a pretty big windfall yeah, on the electric side, electric side of the industry, because Zero's not doing that many. Nope. I would say in the US, before the live wire goes to market, the total available market would be pegged at about a thousand units a year for electric. That's a pretty So they're about number. to double the market. Yeah. Which is an, an impressive thing. Yeah. But again, it's like looking at the other way, well, like well, from Harley Davidson terms, a thousand motorcycles, that's not a whole lot. That's still a bit of business, though. That's still like what thirty million dollars quite a bit in, in revenue. So, um, that's more than Envy Augusta made on the six hundred units of the uh, the Brutale one thousand and the Super Veloce eight hundred Series Zero machines. Because we just crunched those numbers today. Yeah, which is um, still pretty actually, healthy. What's that? That was still pretty healthy. Yeah, I mean that's no, that's nothing to sneeze at. So, like, I guess it kind of matters on your perspective because you look at it that way and you're like, wow, you're about to double the electric market in the U.S. Fantastic. 
but you're kind of coming out with a, like I said, a good, good machine. It's not great. I just wanted a little bit more sizzle with my beef. Um, but you know, they, they did have on display for us, you know, the, the kids bikes that are electric, the electric scooter that they're coming out with the electric bicycle they're coming out with. And we know there's other electric models coming down the pipe. And so like one of the things I keep reminding myself is this is the first step of many. This is, this is the first motorcycle. I was hoping for a little bit more. I was hoping Harley was going to crush this one a little bit more on point. I was hoping to see some better figures in terms of spec sheet. Cause we're still like, let's, let's, let's talk specs real quick. 105 horsepower, right? 86 pound feet of torque. 550 pounds at the curb, 13.6 kilowatt hour battery pack when you measure it nominally, which is how you should measure right. it. 27, $29,800. That's, that's not a strong spec sheet. You know, DC fast charging. Okay. Boom. There's a win. Yep. But the rest of it, you're like, I would like to have seen 125 horsepower. I'd like to have seen maybe a hundred foot pounds of torque. I would like to see the weight closer to 500 pounds. I'd like to have seen the battery pack closer to 20 kilowatt hours. I think the next Didn't gen. Didn't get any of those. The So I was one of the very fortunate ones back in the day, I think like 2008, 2009. I got to drive one of those first Tesla Roadsters. And at the time, if you remember that little car, it was sort of based on the on the Lotus Elise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, chassis, um, not sorta. I mean, it was a Lotus it was Elise chassis. Yeah, it was a heavier Lotus Elise. Yeah, also one that cost it. roughly twice as much. Yeah. Um, one of my customers in Florida bought one, and it it cost them like, I want to say like one hundred twenty eight thousand dollars or some some figure like that. And he was a very smart and very educated human being, and he kind of looked me in the eyes and he said, "I know I'm buying a car that's not what it's going to be later, but I'm hoping that this m- car that I bought will help." paved the way by giving funds to the company that's going to build the next awesome electric car. And he sort of had the right right idea, right? Because so, that Tesla, if you look at one of those old Roadsters and you park it next to even the most base Model 3 that's out now, they're worlds apart, mm-hmm. right? And the Model Absolutely. 3, a base world, uh, a base Model 3 costs 40-something. Yeah, they, they kind of feature creep the price of that. But yeah, they were originally supposed to come out like around 40 grand. Yeah, so point is, you know, I'm I'm hoping that the Livewire is going to be that bike being made by this large company is going to be essentially like that Tesla Roadster. It costs a little too much. It's lacking a little bit, but it kind of you know still has that cool factor of a Harley. Um, so my hope is that these, let's say these forecast a thousand bikes that'll sell and create, you know, the thirty million dollars are going to be the the bikes that are going to help pave the way for the next set that's going to be, you know, let's call it version 2.0. Absolutely. And I think that's that's a good perspective to have, Shaheen, because I think it's really easy to get mired down into this one bike and write Harley-Davidson off. There's a couple red flags that this bike gives me that maybe, like, maybe Harley-Davidson doesn't really understand the market. Maybe Harley-Davidson doesn't really understand electrics. Maybe, you know, this all roads lead to Harley-Davidson right. plan that they have they're not going to be able to execute on, you know, perfectly. Um, but it also like, this is, this is the first try. It is the first bike. They, this isn't the high volume bike. They're not sitting here. This is the bike for everyone. This is a bike for very specific few people. This is the bike to start the electric process and to get dealers to have DC fast chargers and to start, you know, 
I always like to use the phrase boil the frog, you know, <laughs> like, like for a while we've had all the Harley Davidson guys in the pan. We added the water, but we haven't had the burner on and now the burner is on, right? but it's on a real low simmer. You're just getting a little bubble bath and then, you know, now Harley can start cranking up the heat on you. Cause it's like, Hey, that live wire was pretty cool. Wasn't it? Might not have been for you. Wasn't your jam. Didn't have 30 grand. Maybe you didn't like the spec sheet. That's cool. Check out this one though. Check out silent, quiet Bob. Yeah. Silent Bob. <laughs> That's that should be the next bike. Silent it should Bob. be the one. Harley, are you listening? Come on, man. You guys have all the Bob names. This can be Silent Bob. I guarantee you, Harley is listening. Shane. <laughs> I guarantee it. Um, Bob Bob Lightbeer. Bob uh, Lightyear. That's what I meant. They should get. They should get the. I forget the blonde actress name, but they should get Jay. Or uh, sorry, Jason Bob. Muse. Jason Muse. Jason Muse is Jay. Silent and Bob's. What's his name? Bob. Kevin. Kevin Smith. Smith. Yeah, they should get they should tie that in. That's probably not good actually, but I, I kinda like it. Thirty thousand dollars, little man. Put that shit in my hand. <laughs> if that money doesn't show, then no Harley Life Fi for you. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that happened. <laughs> that's it. Oh me, oh me, oh. Uh, <laughs> hey, there's a cool event that we're supposed to go to. Yeah. Tell me, tell me we'll you this is a podcast where they tell me something really cool you've been so, doing. I, you know, I, Mr. Social that I am, I like to go to uh, bike night events. Uh, you know, as much as I'll wag my finger at people with adventure bikes that show up to Starbucks and that's all they ever do with it, I like to show up to Starbucks once in a while and say hi to all the bikers. So instead of Starbucks, I like to create events at local small businesses that are motorcycle friendly and they'll allow 20, 30 motorcyclists to show up and kind of partake and yeah, you know, kind of sharing the coolness of it. So tonight we're gonna go and visit a friend of ours, um, bicycle manufacturing spot. He makes these really badass custom bicycles, and the guy's a Ducati rider and also the builder of really badass old school cafe racers, and uh, also ten thousand dollar bicycles. So he's got a really cool parking lot here in Portland. Uh, what kind red, of bicycles? Road road bikes, hybrid bikes, all kinds of cool little bicycles. There, uh, the company's called Breadwinner. Um, and when I first met him like four years ago, he just seems like such a cool, like just another one of the dudes names, Tony. And then you learn about his bicycles, like, dude, your bicycle costs more than my 999 S that's in my garage right now. They're amazing. Everything's hand built. So you'll wig out. It's pretty awesome. I, I don't, it's not hard to go down a deep financial rabbit hole on a bicycle it's not very interesting why do the wheels cost as much as motorcycle wheels like a carbon fiber bicycle wheel costs as much as a carbon fiber motorcycle wheel i'm not kidding a set of bst wheels for a for a uh, ducati costs like thirty seven hundred dollars how much is a set of carbon fiber i don't know what brand bicycle wheels they're not that far off like pound for pound, it's worth worth a lot more money. Mm-hmm. You want a disc wheel, don't you? I mean, you know, I guess if you're super duper fast, you do. Yeah, I mean, zip wheels. That's kind of like a pretty common disc wheel. Uh, disc Super Nine is about twenty four hundred for a set or for one. Well, that's a good question. Even if it's for a set, we're I talking. I think it's just one. Jesus. <laughs> but you wouldn't necessarily put like a disc wheel on the front. But it doesn't have a throttle. Yeah. And, and doesn't have cruise control and 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 and, and 
I, I like I, hamburgers. I don't disagree with you. <laughs> no, I, I, I got, totally I get an it. Expensive I, bicycle in my garage. Like I know the way. I know how it goes. I mean, we live in Portland. I see a lot of them all the time, and it's it baffles me. It's it's incredible. I I, I love it, and I love going to his uh, his little manufacturing spot to watch them build it because the precision that these people put into these things is awesome. It's a uh, it's. I mean, he's a motorcyclist, and he's a cyclist, so he loves two wheels, no matter how you look at it. Um, so let's go over there. Let's eat some food and meet some people and. Uh, uh, you look like you've had plenty of sleep in the last four days. I was just like closing my eyes on the eat more food because I had <laughs> I had an entire meal before you came over, and you're like, "Let's cook pizza," and I'm like, "All right, I'm a fatty, I'll go too." I'm the same way as you. I could be. And then full. now you're like, "Let's eat again." I'm like, "Can I have three meals in like a three hour more. period? Like, can that be done? That's not helping the race weight, Shaheen. No, not even a little. All right, we'll figure out something to do. Uh, well, let's go do that. That sounds like fun. Um. We got a bunch of stickers got sent out to people who bought a ton of our stickers, and uh, there's more. So if people want to order more stickers, go on our Facebook and our Instagram. I think I don't think I have it on the Instagram, but I have it on the Facebook. But it's my little Etsy shop. <laughs> I don't even know why I started an Etsy shop, and I'm like, I've got the thing. I'll a lot put the of stickers questions. there. A lot of questions. To <laughs> so be many asked questions. There. I got the wrong tires. I got the Etsy shop. Uh, We're gonna have an intervention. Uh, I'm wearing a fucking highlighter yellow jacket today. There's just all kinds of high vis Shaheen. High vis Shaheen with his Etsy shop. Well, um, all I've got to say is, uh, you know, Carlin, miss you a lot, bud. Yep. Wish you were still with us. Thought we had some more races together, and uh, yeah, I don't think a day's gone by when we haven't thought about him. It's been 18 long days. Yeah. Yeah. So my thoughts are definitely with, with his family, with his mom, his dad, his sister. Uh, I can't imagine what the team's going through to, to be there and the other competitors and, and everyone that knew him. And he's a real good dude. And it's a shame that he's gone. So, um, you know, this show's for him. Yeah. All right, bud. Good talk. I'll see you out there. Oh, Sometimes he lets me ride the bike. <laughs> Definitely editing that. <laughs> Definitely editing that whole little section. Out. <laughs>